David Jimmy, it's an honor to have you on. Please give us a brief introduction. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm David Jimmy. Uh, my traditional name, my Hualmuk name is Lenukwiat. Uh, born and raised here in Chilliwack. Uh, parents are from, uh, my mom is from England and my dad is from here. Uh, my grandparents on my mother's side are also from Chesterfield, England. And my grandparents on my father's side are my grandfather from Squayala and my grandmother from Squaw. Wow. And you have done so much for the community. It's tough to choose a place to start, but I would like to start with just some of your family so we can get a better understanding and start from there and then maybe have that will help inform the conversation later on. Sure. Um, I think I actually want to start by just uh, providing a a bit of appreciation to my family, to the Jimmy family right now. Um, just going through a bit of a tough time. Um you know, unfortunately, in in communities where with large families, we often go through loss, and and at a time of loss, you really see family come together. And uh, unfortunately, for Squayala and for our Jimmy family, we've we've lost two uh, family members just over the last two weeks. And I was contemplating whether or not to come on and and do this because we are in the middle of of uh, one of one of the losses. But I also felt that it was important because people then can see also what happens within community. People can have an opportunity to see uh, what more is out there in First Nations communities. Not only that, I think taking the opportunity to raise a little bit of awareness. Um, sometimes we, we have individuals in our communities, not only in the First Nations communities that are going through difficult times, and they're finding a really hard, they find it difficult to cope. And, uh, and some people, um, don't know where to turn. They don't know what is available to them. And so I wanted to also just take a moment to, to talk about and, and acknowledge that, um, there are a lot of people out there suffering still a lot of our youth, uh, facing tough challenges. And we have to be aware, I think as, as individuals as leaders, um, whether or not you're in a leadership position is just being mindful and aware to recognize the signals and recognize when somebody is struggling and be able to, to ask them just a simple conversation sometimes will, will go a long way. So I just, I wanted to acknowledge, uh, my family because, you know, over the last two weeks, I've really seen our family come together and rally in support of the family, the direct family's loss. Um, you know, we come together, we bring meals, uh, we, we come and just provide that support. We'll have our, our, um, those that have the gift of, of drumming and to carry those cultural teachings will come and share songs to help uplift the spirit. So I just, I just wanted to take a moment because it is important. Um, I know in a lot of instances, uh, some people don't have anybody and they go through a, a process of loss and don't know where to start and don't have the supports. And we see large communities like ours come together and family really sticks together and is there for one another. So I just wanted to, to just, um, acknowledge them for everything that they do and also, um, raise that awareness. We have a lot of, um, issues in communities that I think, uh, we, we need to be alive to. And so I just wanted to take that, that moment, um, family wise, uh, growing up, I was uh, a second youngest uh, in, in my family, a large family. I have, uh, there were seven boys and two sisters. And um, 
you know, growing up here in Chilliwack, I grew up uh, on the reserve of Squayala and my parents separated at a young age. So we kind of had a decision where we were going. Um, a few of us went with my mother. And so we bounced around for a while. Um, my mom was, uh, is an extremely resilient woman who had very tough challenges raising boys and um, providing for us. And uh, I feel very fortunate that we, we had her to come and um, step up. You know, I can remember her working two, three jobs and um, still putting us in hockey, you know, that many kids and, and running around and doing all of those things. Um, so we did bounce around quite a bit. I saw a lot of Chilliwack, uh, you know, we, we lived kind of from house to house, uh, for, for a little while. Um, and then I moved back and forth to my dad's a little bit growing up too, which was a little bit difficult. Um, you know, part of the reason for the separation was, was due to alcohol and, and, uh, with my father and he just wasn't, um, again, a, a struggle for him. And, and he later on in life had, you know, dealt with that struggle and, and was sober for a, a long number of years before, uh, he had passed. Um, so I think growing up, being exposed to that, learning from that, like that's what you have to do is you have to take an opportunity to step back and go, okay, what are the things that shaped you growing up? And it's being able to recognize, um, you know, that hard work from my mother, that difficult position from my father. And, and then later, um, as you're trying to work through things, understand why they were the way they were. And with my, my father, you know, you just have to look at the historical impacts of indigenous people right across the country. And you have a pretty good idea of what they were exposed to, the challenges they had and, and the lack of parenting, you know, I know, um, residential schools has a, a lot of, uh, has had a lot of attention over the years and, and it's rightfully so, um, you know, these children grew up essentially without parents and then they were trying to figure out how to be parents themselves. So, you know, that, that's a little bit about my family and growing up, I guess, um, well, going to that point, what you said earlier about grieving and going through that loss, it's really easy to think that that will all just happen and family will come together. But that's it's a lot of work to have the small conversations to bring people together. And I think that that's something we don't talk enough about is it's no, the stages of grief are normal, but how we can come together and actually make that something that brings the family together is something that doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it tears the family apart. We start fighting over ridiculous things like the will and who gets what, and that can really detract from a whole person's life, 80 years, like a life of somebody, and we can lose that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's important to bring to light. And to, to Indigenous people's credit, we do grieve so, so much more, in my view, because it is a whole community thing. When I was working on the resource manual, I would have chiefs say like we're dealing with loss so we're not going to deal with this right now because the community's grieving and that's like that's a way bigger statement because you would never hear like the city of Chilliwack is currently like it doesn't come across that way but mm -hmm. that can happen in d indigenous communities and those are things that I also don't think are brought up in the media when we're talking about indigenous issues is how we handle important things like grief mm -hmm. and so I think that that is important to talk about because I do think that that is something where indigenous people really do come together. Yeah. And, you know, we've, every community operates differently and, and we recognize 
and have been through it so many times that we understand how difficult it is for the family. So um, we step in um, and try to do as much as possible to take any pressures off of the family. So, um, you know, I, unfortunately I've, I've had to be a part of coordinate right eulogies, um, more than anybody should, I think in, in a short span of, of, uh, you know, 11 years of being chief, 10 years of being chief. And it's, it's taxing. It's really heavy work. It's, um, it's emotionally and spiritually draining. And there's the upside of it, knowing that you're there to take that pressure off the family. Um, but people don't understand what's involved, you know, a, a cultural, um, traditional ceremony is there's a lot of work that has to take place. And so, um, we try to step in so that the family does have time just to simply sit back, relax and not relax, but, um, to sort of have that time together and not have to worry about the little details of who's doing what, what's going to be done, how it's going to work. You know, we, we lay it, have a, a, our process of, of sitting down with the family to get, um, sort of initial, um, requests and, and wishes from the family to honor them. And then, uh, we try to do as much as we can in the community. And that's, again, uh, every community is different, but, um, we found that it, it's having gone through loss myself, uh, it's important and you really have to, to be mindful of where people are at in those stages. Absolutely. And I think that going back to my experience with you previously, you may not have realized this, but when I was a court worker working with individuals who were facing the, the court system, they were the ones wanting to talk to you and knowing that you were the resource to go to. And that was kind of my first interaction with your name was people recognizing like, well, my chief is amazing. And like, if I need something, I know I can go to him. And it was like, this is so unique for me because usually it's who do you have that you can turn to right now? And the list is short and they're nervous or they're already with the person that they believe they can turn to. And to be able to turn to you and have this name that keeps reoccurring and I hear it in the community all the time, that was my experience. And it was so humbling to know that it didn't feel like they were doing it to bring your name up and, and show off that they know you. It was like, a, I need this person and they're amazing. And so it was kind of like a glimpse into how other people see you. And that was so humbling for me because it does show that people's decisions and how they operate in their community makes a difference. It does show up in the important moments. I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, I think one of the things that I learned early on was in, in positions of leadership, I, I think it's very important to lead by example. So it's not about, um, you know, having a status or, or anything like that. Um, people that know me know that I, they'll come in and say, you know, chief David or, or, you know, Mr. Jimmy, as you welcomed me this morning. And I'm like, just, just Dave is good. You know, <laughs> I don't, um, I'm not, Title is just a word. Um, you know, there are many people out there that don't have a title in front of their name that do exceptional work. Um, they're there for families. They're there to support. They they see something happening and they jump forward and and they may not be recognized by the name or or having that title. So I I'm you know I, I understand titles and and I understand um, how people can connect them to certain positions. But at the end of the day. Uh, you're really just there to try to pr provide support and be there and, and help, uh, whether it's your own members or even friends or, f you know, family. I think it is 
part of the biggest uh, contribution. Absolutely. Can you tell us just a little bit of your family lineage? Because I think for some people, they may know it as the Jimmy Reserve, mm -hmm. but for others, it's Squayala. So can you tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about the history? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so it's a bit unique currently. We have... Uh, um, so my grandfather and my grandfather. So my grand grandfather Sam and my grandmother Teresa. Um, at at one point we had they had their siblings uh, living on the reserve, but they had all moved away to different communities, and so it ended up just being my my granny Teresa and my grandfather Sam that um, were on the, the reserve and of Squayala, and they had seven boys, and so those seven boys my father and my six uncles. And if you look at Squayala, the Jimmy Reserve, as people used to call it growing up, um, every member in our community comes from those seven boys. So if you, it, it's a bit unique um, having 200, just over 200 members. And we're that closely linked to my father and my uncles that everybody comes from. So you have seven major families in the community. And, um, that's a, you know, a, a, so when you're dealing in community issues and maybe that's, you know, I, that's probably why people refer to it as the Jimmy reserve, because it was the seven Jimmy boys growing up and then all of their kids. Right. So, um, growing up, they were very active. Uh, my uncles and my dad, uh, they were active in canoe pulling they had Fraser one, two, and three canoes for 11 man canoes that they traveled around with. Um, they were known for playing soccer as well. They played lacrosse. Um, fishing is, was always very big in our community. So, you know, everybody's got their different locations and fishing spots from Yale down to Chilliwack. Um, so I guess that's a little bit of the, the lineage in the community and how unique it is. My grandmother was a really, was a big driving force in our community as uh, a chief for a number of years and helped kind of steer and guide the community into, um, she was very active locally with, uh, municipality. She was uh, a nurse. She had gone and, and contributed and, and worked, um, trying to support local initiatives as well. So it's, uh, I find that maybe that's where I get a bit of that kind of drive for the relationship building piece. Yes, because that is a huge part. What was it like growing up on the reserve in comparison? Because I grew up off of reserve and I certainly recognized that going back onto reserve, I was treated differently mm. because I wasn't from the community. They looked at my mom and I for some certain points as if we abandoned them. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the case. We were part of the 60s scoop, so it wasn't my mom's choice to leave. But we have experienced those tensions. So what has it been like for you to kind of watch those relationships occur? It's unfortunate when we see um, people move away or people that didn't grow up there and not by choice and then try to find their way home and not be fully accepted. I, you know, I, I've always struggled with that because family is family at the end of the day and, uh, decisions that were beyond your control. Um, you can't blame somebody for that, or you can't hold that against somebody. Uh, so I, I think just watching it, we, we try to be encouraging when we find out that members are coming back or want to come back. And, and, you know, when we have community events, obviously outside of COVID, um, we encourage them to come be a part of the community, um, and be there. I've witnessed the, um, it's almost like 
it's almost reverse racism in a way. You, you, you know, we, we've been exposed and experienced racism growing up in different ways. Um, but it's not to say that it doesn't happen the other way as well. So our own community, you know, our own communities that feel a certain way about individuals or groups or, or the, the differences that exist. Um, I'm not naive to think that it doesn't exist because I've seen it. Uh, how we deal with it, I think, is is a, a bit of a challenge, and but it's recognizing it as a first step um, and calling it out when it is happening. And so I, I think just that um, the more work communities do together, I think the stronger they are and, and the more accepting they are. Um, I, I, I don't think that exists everywhere. Uh, I've also seen, you know, family members come home welcomed with open arms. So it's not just one-sided. It's, uh, there's a bit of a mix, but it's just, uh, I think it's a, a result of, if you think about the Indian act, you know, creation of reserves and limitations on what you could do. Um, there's an element of it that, that sort of pushed a, uh, created a certain mindset, you know, trust factor. Um, how do you trust after so many things have gone, you know, gone wrong um the the challenges and the um the racism against indigenous people uh so i think that that contributes to that factor of you know people staying close and, and keeping within their own circles and if an outsider's coming in you're very wary about it so i don't i don't think it's you know on purpose i think there's an element of of what we've been exposed to that's kind of contributed to that factor. I absolutely agree. But what was it like? Because I listened to the TED Talk you did, which was absolutely phenomenal. And some of those experiences I don't think get enough light because there are subtle differences. There's major differences, but there's also subtle differences. And I think that that's what you touched on mm -hmm. a lot in the TED Talk is you just don't realize that the behind the curtain, there's so much more going on. And I think that those are the conversations we should be having when we talk about reconciliation is trying to line up those little things where when you were, I think it was like 15, mm -hmm. you were operating a vehicle and that was normal to you, but completely outside of the realm of possibility to somebody off of reserve. Mm -hmm. Those are subtle differences of what makes a person up yeah. that we don't realize. Do you have any other of those stories or experiences? So, um, lots. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think in that instance, I talked about the story. Uh, I can't remember if it was the one about driving from hockey. Yes. Yeah. So another one is, um, we fit our fishing spot is in Yale at Emory Creek. And so growing up, that's, you know, we, we spent a lot of time there and being second youngest, there's a big gap in, in my, with, with my siblings. And so we were, we were fishing at, at, uh, in Yale and on the last day we used to pack all our fish up the hill. And so, um, we pack up the camp, we head up uh, to the top of the hill and, uh, over the tracks and get in the vehicles and drive home. So I had the last, um, sack of fish to care to carry up the hill and and so i had got to the top of the hill and I, I got over the tracks and and i look and and it's just my older brother uh one of my older brothers sitting there and and um he had this old like 1971 uh chevelle and he had been drinking all 
day <laughs> um, and his friend as well. And, and so I had got to the top of the hill. I looked around and my dad was gone. Everybody was gone and it was just my brother. And, and so I put the fish in the back, in the trunk of his car. You know, we had a tarp out and put, put the fish in the trunk of the car. Uh, closed the car. I jump into the passenger seat and, and he loved his loud music. Always has. He's just one of those guys. It's, back then it was six by nines that were, you know, the big popular loud music in a car. And, and so we would sit there with his loud kind of old rock and roll music just cranked. And, um, I kind of looked over and I was thinking, oh, this is not, this is not good. And he, he stopped for a moment and he looked at me and he goes, um, do you think you could drive? And I was only, I think I was either 14 or 15 at the time. And this is in Yale. And, and so I, it's a long drive. It's a long drive. Yeah. And I've never been on the highway before, you know, driving around the reserve is a little different yeah. doing 30 or 40, but you know, on the highway, on the low heat or, or, and then getting on the highway number one. So, uh, he looked at me and asked me if I could drive. And I said, I, I think so. And he goes, he just stared at me. He goes, either you can or you can't. And so, you know, with a few uh, swear words in there, of course. And, and he was funny about it, but I said, I looked at him and was like, yeah, I can because he's in no condition. So I drove all the way from Yale to Chilliwack. Um, you know, you talk about white knuckling and thinking about driving through a snowstorm or a rainstorm for the first time while well, that was me, uh, holding on as tight as I could driving while he, you know, still had his music playing. Um, it was this, you know, old car with a tarp in the back and, so every time I turned a corner, all the fish would go to one side of the trunk. And so it started to pull the car a little bit. Um, anyway, I, I, so I, I drove all the way home. My dad happened to be filming, uh, outside just as I pulled in. So we actually got it on camera. Uh, I pull in, my brother yells out the window and he says, he drove all the way, you know, and I, and then. I pull up, put it in reverse, back, back it in, um, to the totes. And you just see this little kid's head pop out of the window to look back and go park the car. I get out, walk in, um, you know, those are, I think back on it now. And, and I, at the time was super scary. Um, do we do that today? No. Would I ever allow my children to do that? No way. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough that I had, you know, enough experience to drive, but uh, that that could have easily gone the wrong way. You know, it's a it's a neat story to be able to tell and have it on film and that, but um, you know, you think about how dangerous it was, and it's a bit frightening. But I, you know, I can kind of look back and and laugh. Um, I have plenty of other stories of and examples of growing up where. Uh, things just happen on reserve that didn't, well, they, I shouldn't say they don't happen off reserve, but they were probably more frequent on reserve. And, you know, I, I mentioned in my talk that, um, it was a close friend of mine that as we were, I think in our early twenties, he met, had made a comment one time about me growing up a little rough. And I just thought, no, I, it's normal because when you grow up, you just think that everything around you is the way that it's supposed to be. And you don't think anything of it. Until you start realizing that everybody else uh, is not going through some of those experiences. And I will never expose my children to some of those experiences. You know, it's just not, um, 
they shouldn't have to see it. And and so I guess you you learn from those when I talk about being sort of shaped in a way and and um would I take those experiences away? No, I think it really did contribute to who I am and how I understand things now and and the differences in in how I look at my kids being raised. Yeah, I completely agree because for me, um, my mom was obviously part of the 60s group, but she grew up more in White Rock. Mm. And that is a very different group of people than Chihuahua and that community over there. And so I definitely got to experience a dichotomy of what it's like to have very little and what it's like to have everything you kind of need. Yeah. And that that I wouldn't trade that for anything because I did learn so much about what it's like to struggle and where did that struggle come from and what is it like to have a lot and be so comfortable and trying to tie those two together really forces you to grapple with both issues and understand that having everything isn't great and having nothing isn't great. Yeah. And But having those two really forces me to think about both sides mm -hmm. and understand the like Caucasian culture and indigenous culture. And that's where I feel like my knowledge lacks. I want to take Halklamalum courses and learn more about it because I don't know what I don't know. And there could be a lot of knowledge there that I just don't have access to and mm -hmm. I should go explore it so I can bring the two closer together and yeah. have that. So you've obviously done that as well. What has that been like for you to grow up? in an indigenous culture and want to bring the two together? Oh, um, you know, we, my dad had built our first longhouse in our community, uh, right in front of our home. And so we grew up as kids in there, you know, um, in sort of the off season playing and, and just being immersed in, in that culture. Um, my dad having become a, a new dancer in, in Lummi. And, uh, so we grew up there and unfortunately it had burned down, uh, and I think it was 1994 and, uh, just devastated my dad. And so you, you grow up knowing and learning about certain aspects of, of that culture. But, uh, I also was very alive and in tune to officer because, you know, we're in an urban setting. We're not rural. We're, we're, here immersed in in uh the local municipality and so i think growing up knowing that um how different they were and that a lot of people you don't realize again kind of back to that story of when a friend says you grew up a little rough and, and you say no um it's that awakening of saying okay there's a lot more of that out there there's a lot out there that people just simply don't understand. And we've made incredible strides, I think, in the indigenous communities, um, in areas of economic development, of land jurisdiction, you know, all of these areas, taxation, you name it. I feel like um, there's been a ton of progress, but the common citizen has no idea that all of that has been taking place. And so sometimes I feel like we've been left out of the conversation or we haven't been a part of it. And that was a big push for me to start building those relationships in Chilliwack to start looking at bridging the gaps between the indigenous community and non-indigenous community. And that was something that was really, has always been, uh, very important to me. And, uh, it's not, not that I'm trying to push anything on anybody. It's an awareness and it's an education piece as much as I want to learn about how, um, you know, off reserve certain elements of the municipality work or how we can find ways to work together through the provincial government or federal government. Um, so I think that, that helped 
you know, those experiences helped me decide or, or think about what could we do here and, and what could we do that's going to benefit the greater community overall. And, and I think I've been very fortunate to find and align myself with, with like-minded people uh, in the non-Indigenous community. So it's been a, a, a good experience, clearly not, not done, um, but uh, I think we've made some great strides in Chilliwack. That's awesome. Before we move into that piece, because that's absolutely a part I want to get into, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the ceremonies and maybe things that people wouldn't think of that are some of the benefits of having a potlatch or or getting together in community? Some things where it just might go unnoticed, but it's super valuable. I think that that happens a lot and we can see that readily with the benefits of the court system. There's obviously flaws, but like innocent until proven guilty is an easy thing that they brought that's super useful. Can mm-hmm. you just tell us a little bit about the ceremonies and what people might not think of when they hear potlatch that might, or other, other mm-hmm. things? Um, there's, I mean, a number of, of different ceremonies for salmon ceremony. Um, you, you know, you think of others where it's just a community puberty rights ceremonies. Um, and then there are a number, you know, in that take place in the longhouse that we don't really talk publicly about. It's not, it's not that it's secret. It's just that there's there's a place for tradition and culture that sits um, amongst our communities. And if people feel free to talk about it, I think they can. I I don't feel that it's my place to really share any of, of that information and in, in stories. Um, I just it, you know I I compare it a little bit, or or you look at different. Um, religions throughout the world and it's a culture that you grow up with and it's a um, ceremonies that take place um, teachings that are passed on you know I, I think of that's the the most one of the most valuable parts of of culture and tradition and ceremonies is is that these teachings are being passed on from generation to generation through elders who um, you know a lot of times will hear speakers um, talk and share stories and sometimes they don't tell you the end of the story or sometimes they don't uh, finish the story. It feels like they haven't finished the story. And if you go asking, uh, an elder will likely tell you that, um, you know, it's intentional because you're supposed to figure out what that means or you're supposed to, you know, as part of your journey and your learning experience, understand what that is. Um, so I, I think the, the value is, again, uh, passing on of knowledge. I think it's understanding it's important for us to understand uh, for anybody who you are and where you come from. Um, and, and it doesn't have to necessarily define you. I think that's a luxury that we have in today's world is that you can have all of those, you know, if, if, if people's religion is, whether it's to be Christian, um, you're indigenous, um, Jewish, it, it doesn't matter. That's not what defines you as an individual. I think it's the work that you go out and do. You keep those values close to you um, and you're raised with them, but every individual is out there doing what they believe is is right, likely guided by a lot of that, the, the principles that we have in, in culture and in tradition, but um, I, I don't think it's there to necessarily dictate who you are as an individual. I think that's something that we all do ourselves. Absolutely. So let's move into it a little bit more then and talk about in 2008 and 2009, you were working for a construction company. Mm-hmm. It was your own, mm-hmm. D- David Jimmy Construction. Yep. And then the 2008 financial crisis happened and you. it sounds like you left that. 
and you traveled. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what that whole experience was like? Sure. Um, the, I think it was in construction from 2005 to uh, 2008 when the, the crash had taken place. And um, again, very fortunate to be in a position and, and work with some great partners. Um, I have had wonderful working relationship with the Van Maren group of companies in Chilliwack. So had built uh, Halcyon Meadows in, in Vetter and then uh, moved out to West Bank and built uh, three apartment buildings in West Bank. And it was at the end of that that there were, you know, the market was doing what it was doing. There were no new projects really lined up. I wasn't sure um, what my next step was going to be, if it was going to stay in construction. And uh, that's when I, you know, I had always taught, I've, I'd always traveled and, but I'd sort of made a commitment to myself when I was younger that one day I would love to do a big trip. Uh, the stars just seemed to happen to align and uh, I ended up. Uh, buying a, a an around the world ticket, they sort of called it, but you just you you would go to certain places, and then from there you could buy your own tickets. And you know, like Europe is so big that you can. I traveled around quite a bit there, but um, it was a bit of a soul searching, I think, trip. Um, you know, I knew I, I started obviously with my going to see my grandmother and family in in England, and then uh, I, probably half of the places that I went to, I knew people. Um, so I wasn't always alone. Like there were lots of times where you're kind of, uh, I thought about coming home, but as no, I gotta, I gotta get through this. Um, and I, I just, I've always been a fan of experiencing other cultures and other, uh, areas of the world because you find similarities often. And then the subtle differences that are, are, you know, helping to shape what, you know, that particular country is like, or, or a group of people. Um, I can remember, uh, being in Andola in Africa and doing a bit of volunteer work there and sitting down and talking with some of the elders in the community and they were sharing stories and they were so similar to some of the stories that are told by our elders. And, um, you know, in some of the sort of smaller, um, townships they were called is essentially like a almost, I don't know what the proper term is for it, but you know, single huts, large families, no running water, no um, stoves, you know, cooking over the fire. And they'd, there'd be like 3,000 people in these townships. And so the, when I first got there and walked through one, I had, you know, a crowd of kids following me. And because they hadn't seen someone like me come through their, their township. And so before I had, had left, like these are all these experiences I think about on that trip that, that were, uh, so memorable and and I had bought a number of soccer balls in in England and flattened them, put them in my backpack and brought them with me. So, you know, I had a ball and they're they're sitting there, they've got a um their soccer field, if you would call it that, is by our standards, is just dirt sort of area. They had these really um they had sticks essentially for the goalposts and what they were kicking around was, was uh, plastic bags wrapped and wrapped and wrapped. So it was like a garbage soccer ball. Right. Oh. Yeah. And so for them to have a real soccer ball is uh, they're super excited. Um, it, but it, it's going and seeing that, that type of, 
I don't know if, you know, I, I think it's just the, when you see it, and again, this reminds me of, of growing up, you don't think about what's right or wrong or around you or, or whatever, because these children are all still happy. It's what they have and where they are and what they're growing up with. They don't know any different, but they're happy. And you can see the smiles on their faces. You can see what they're doing. Um, obviously, there were some struggles. There was a lot of, um, you, could, you could also see the fear in some of the children with the older men, um, which was, which was um, you know, hard to, to watch. And, and I didn't see any of the abuse, but you could just feel something was, was off. Um, but those types of experiences, I think, just make you think twice about what we have at home. And I always thought it would be great to have an exchange program when people start complaining about what we have here in the community and, you know, lack of resources or whatever. And, and I thought, okay, well, maybe we should arrange something. <laughs> we'll go over there and you can see what it's really like because it's a, it's a whole different world. Yeah, I definitely think that that's true with the appreciation that Indigenous people and obviously in Africa they have for their elders. Mm -hmm. But during this pandemic, I think it's shined a light on the lack of resources and the lack of support just general community members offer to their elders. Yeah. And I think that that's a unique part of Indigenous culture that is now separate from Caucasian culture, which is to take care of your elders. And obviously, mm -hmm. like Caucasian people still do that, but just on scale in Chilliwack, I think that that has been presented as an issue. And so I think it's so valuable to be able to share these stories and these experiences. What other places did you go to and what were those experiences like? Um, uh, I mean, I think it was 19 countries in that, uh, in that period. And everywhere was a little different. Um, you know, even Botswana to Andola, different. Um, Egypt to uh, Oman, different. And, you know, I, I can remember Egypt was one of the most unique experiences when I, because I had landed and I had checked into my room uh, and I just went to the lounge and I was just having a beer, you know, kind of relaxing. And I, my, one of my brothers had phoned me and said, Hey, what are you up to? Where are you at? And I said, well, it's interesting because you're not going to believe this. I'm sitting down, just having a beer and, and looking out the window at the pyramids, <laughs> you know, I'm, that's wild. I'm just, wow. this, you know, you, you think of all the things that you'd like to see in the world and. You, you grow up reading about it and then I was just there. And so then the next day, of course, you know, being on a camel and, and riding out through and just that experience, uh, there's something to be said about seeing things firsthand. Um, the differences and, you know, I got dropped off in old Cairo and walked my way through to new Cairo and, and old Cairo, you know, really run down. Um, I had a young boy pull a knife on me, uh, just, Again, he, he, I didn't even know how to react because he was so little. Uh, so I ended up just buying him some food and then he left and he was fine. Yeah. Um, and then you get into New Cairo where it's just all the tourists are and it's a different, you know, situation. So you see the extreme, extreme poverty to, to non. And, and I think uh, you see that everywhere. Um, but I think that was, that was one of the, the unique experiences, being able to be a, there, understanding the rich history that was there. Um, other places, Sagres, uh, southern Portugal was one of my favorite. I think it was just getting off the beaten path a bit, and it was just a surf camp, so I was able to kind of go and not think about a whole lot and, and just um, spend some time. Or It's one of those places where you have, I think there might have been two ATM machines, one grocery store, just really uh, small and, and enjoyable location. Um, 
Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, I, I think, again, you know, seeing the killing fields uh, firsthand is, is something that it's almost a bit traumatizing because you know the history of what had taken place there. And it's not a, I, I, you know, I don't think it's a place that you go in like a typical tourist uh, location, but I wanted to understand a little bit more about it and hear firsthand from uh, some of the people there. And, and it was just devastating. Um, again, these eye-opening sort of experiences that help formulate your own thought process and, and help um, think about the things that are important to you. And uh, so I, I have, you know, a ton of, a ton of stories from that trip. Um, those are some that stood out to me. Um, again, differences in just simple traffic, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Egypt traffic was brutal. Um, in Southeast Asia traffic, again, you know, we're all the, everybody's on a scooter lining up at the light and there is no really real rhyme or reason to, to how everybody is moving forward and, and crossing the street. That was very unique. I think it was in Vietnam. Um, you know, you don't wait for the light or the signal. You just start walking. And I didn't fully grasp that. And, and they said, you got to just start walking. Don't make eye contact with, because the scooters, there's hundreds of them just going by. Yeah. And vehicles. And just don't make eye contact. Just pick your path, walk it, and they'll all go around you. So if you make eye contact, because that's not what they do, they don't know what you're going to do. They think you're going to move one way or the other. So if you just keep going, they all go. And they did. That's wild. Yeah, like little things like that. that <laughs> it's a bit of a leap of, you know, um, uh, of trust that you have to have with the local people to say how things are done. Um, I, you know, other areas, Zambia was a, a unique experience. I had finished in, in Andola and wanted to do something different. So I went on a, a adrenaline trip and I did, you know, river rafting down the Zambezi. I did some abseiling, uh, did this. Um, uh, what else was there? Oh, a gorge swing, which was pretty frightening. Um, what is that? So they, they have this, a big gorge, right? That, and they got a cable going across the top of it and, uh, it, you know, it's clipped into the middle and their safety standards are a little different over there. So you kind of, again, it's a trust factor. And so you, you buckle into this harness and they, uh, and it's just this big cable that's connected into the middle and you just take a, a leap off the cliff and you get about three, four seconds of free fall. And then the rope, you know, the cable connects and whips you across the, Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, uh, again, I'm by myself and, and there's other tourists that are doing this. Um, and I got, I had to get somebody to, to film it for me. And I, as soon as I stepped off, I screamed and, and I got down to the bottom and I was like, okay, I'm going to do it again. And I'm not going to scream. I've already done it. I'm good. And so they filmed it again and it's the exact same scream. The second <laughs> time. So, um, uh, you know, mixing the balance of experiencing local culture to still having fun and going and doing things, you know, skydiving in Australia or bungee jumping in, in, uh, Zambia as well. Um, so I, I there were just so many different elements of that trip that I, it's been a while since I've watched any of those videos or, or thought about that trip that you kind of think back and go, Oh, actually, yeah, that was, you know, quite a, quite amazing to actually go and, and do it and get it done. Yeah. Um, 
and I, at the time I had no kids. I wasn't married. So I, uh, um, yeah, I think it was a big, big contributor to sort of helping shape where I am. And, and, you know, one of the highlights of that trip was that I actually got engaged on the trip. Wow. Yeah. That is amazing. Please yeah. go on. Yeah. So, um, you know, my, my current, my wife, Brenda, she, uh, we were boyfriend, girlfriend at the time and she was, she understood, she understood that, uh, if I didn't do it, then I was never going to do it. And so she was, um, you know, saying, I don't think she was encouraging. I think she was accepting and, and being good with it. So I went and, and I had already had an idea of, you know, where we were going. And, um, so I flew her out, uh, at the beginning of the trip to England and we went to Italy. And, um, so I ended up buying the ring in England and then proposing in Italy. So it was, uh, at the early stages of the trip before. And so I, you know, that was, I think something else that, that became tougher and tougher is that I knew what I was coming home to. Um, but it was just an important part of me to, to go and do that trip and, and experience. Wow. That is amazing because going back to what you said about going to Vietnam and experiencing those things, to me, it's really hard to believe that somebody can be a good person if they're just naive, like trusting someone just because they say they're not going to do anything. It's trusting, knowing they could hoop you, they could screw you over. That's real trust because you know what another person is capable of to go to those places and to know what happened there and what human beings are capable of is part of being a role model because you have to recognize I'm not going to go in this direction. I'm not going to be like what happened to my people. I'm not going to let what happened in Vietnam happen in my community. Like those things are so important to develop yourself and say like, I'm going, cause you are in my view going towards the best possible good for the community, for your family and moving in that direction is full well knowing how bad things could be if you weren't doing these things because they could get worse. And I think that that's so valuable because it sounds like you learned so much from those experiences and you came back like a fully grown adult, like where you knew what people are capable of. You knew what you wanted with your partner. Mm -hmm. And that's so much growth to do in one year. Did you expect that when you were going into it? No, I had no idea. No? You know, I, I can clearly remember, um, my brother, one of my brothers had, had driven me to the airport and we sat and kind of just chatted a bit before I left. And it was just one of those weird moments where he, uh, he said, he was like, you know, I wish I was coming. And of course, and cause we had actually backpacked to Europe when we were younger and, and, uh, gave him a hug and just walking through those gates kind of going, I'm not sure what's going on, <laughs> what I'm doing here. I'm like, I guess I'm really doing this and just kind of take that leap and go for it. So, but, you know, had I thought I was going to gain all of that experience, I was hoping I would have, you know, come away from it with an educational piece of, of understanding more of the world and, and people. Um, but, you know, thinking back, even as I talk about it now, I don't think it was, you know, fully expecting all of that. Yeah. So you went away and then you come back with like kind of a whole different mindset and a different approach. Mm -hmm. What, where did you start when you got back and what were your priorities? Because a lot of things came from that mm -hmm. and where we are today is completely different than before you went on that trip. So what was the transition to come back? Like it was tough. Uh, you know, I, I'll be honest, I floundered a little bit cause I wasn't, I was still unsure of the direction. Uh, my mother had always, I felt like 
was trying to bring me back into the community um, in in some form or fashion, whether it was working or or in a you know in the position I'm in now. And so an opportunity came up for a lands manager manager position in in the community, and I I went for it. Um, and I was you know starting, and I you know I understood the dy- dynamics in the community. I understood the uh, dynamics and what was going on, and and it was kind of being immersed in the in the band office that opened my eyes a little bit more to what was going on or or the opportunities that were there and um and then you know I think I was in that position for a year before I decided to run uh, for the chief position wow mm. so for indigenous people I'm not sure if this is true for Squayala but some they do that traveling or they go into the forest and they reflect was that at all part of the decision or because I think that that happens a lot more in the States with indigenous communities mm. where they'll go away and they'll do like a spirit reflect. Yeah. Was that at all? No, not so much. Um, I, on my trip, I, I, you know, we often talk about um, being visited by our ancestors and, and, uh, or, or if you say certain things out loud, you're held to those things that you say, not by, yourself but by and you know you have to fulfill what you've said and i had talked about a few things on the trip about the community and and i actually remember a moment of um it was my my grandmother you know who had, was passed and and just felt that she there was this connection to say okay it's time to go home and it was along that trip and and that had deeper meaning you know time to go home also meant you know, what can you do in the community and, and how can you help? And I don't think there was, you know, I didn't go on a, um, any type of fasting or, or sort of vision quest type of idea. It was just more thinking about how I could contribute. And, and it wasn't, you know, I, I don't like to, I think too often we see and hear of, of, um, leadership issues and, and I was never wanting to you know, don't take anything away from previous leadership. You know, I, I believe that they did what they they could in their time there, and I felt like I had something different to offer. And it was from work experience, it was from you know education, it was from a different understanding of development, especially with the negotiation of the easement agreement with the city and Eagle Landing coming. So I think those are contributing factors, and um, just being able to to help. Uh, you know, wanting to to be able to provide additional support in the community and and maybe it was a time for a new direction wow well that's absolutely phenomenal so let's get into the education piece because that basically happened around the time that you got back and then you went to uh, the university of the fraser valley and you chose business can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like sure i i went to university right out of high school um to ufe with no plans and so it was general studies i was taking you know history classes. I thought I was going to go into kinesiology. So I took a few kinesiology classes. Um, I was in geography because I had taken geography in high school. I had no, no idea what I wanted to do. So just felt like everybody was going. So I needed to, um, from there that's, you know, I ended up going back to work, uh, worked for several years. I was a forest firefighter for seven summers. I was a father. My dad was a father, um, worked in, in the school district as a, uh, Aboriginal, education assistant as well. Um, so that wasn't my first time, you know, wasn't the first time going back to university, but this time was focused. And so coming back, 
you know, I enrolled in the program. I felt that I needed to be immersed in an actual program and, and sort of determined to, to finish that. Uh, UFE, you know, was an easy decision just being here. I, um, I wasn't looking to travel. You know, a lot of people want to get out of Chilliwack right away. They're ambitious to go to the, you know, a university across the country or into the States and, or even just to Vancouver. And, and I wasn't, that wasn't me. So I was happy to go to UFE. I felt that they had programs that were, they were offering, which were suitable to what I was looking for. And, uh, the business administration program aligned well with me because, um, I had done the work in the construction industry, um, learned more on the development side, came back into the community and started to see the opportunities and what we were doing with Eagle Landing. Uh, majority of that was already negotiated by the time I had got there, but, um, you really wanted to ensure that you had the skills and ability to, to look after that properly. And, and that was something that was important to me. And also, again, I go back to leading by example. Um, there's a lot of moments in leadership that you just don't feel are, uh, you know, are you supposed to be this almighty visionary and you know, you have all the answers and this wise person? Well, no, you, you, you learn along the way and you're, you're shaped along the way. Um, and so I just felt that, you know, that education piece has all, was always important to me. Um, it was something that just internally, I always felt that I needed to complete. And so going back felt good at that time, uh, having a, a, a clear direction was super helpful and, uh, UFE just was a, was a good fit for me. So. Wow. And then you moved on to SFU shortly after that, correct? Mm -hmm. And yeah. what was that transition like from something a little bit more local to having to, I suppose, drive all the way out there? Yeah, it, it's, it's an ex executive MBA program. So a little bit different. We would do two week, um, you know, you're on campus for two weeks and then you're doing everything online and in, in between in correspondence with your instructors. Um, that was a bit of an eye opener. I think I... A lot of it, I, I believe, really just helps with your work ethic. You know, you've got timelines you have to meet. You know, if you really want to um, do well in the program, you got to put the time in and, and the effort and, and understand what you're doing. So the transition there, that was tough because, you know, I had this position of chief for the community. Uh, I had my first, my, my boy, younger, you know, a new baby. Um, and then going for, you know, two weeks at a time and then at home going to work every day, getting home, doing, you know, family time. Uh, and then I would start my homework sometimes at like nine, eight thirty, nine o'clock at night and sit down there until, I, you know, falling asleep pretty much. And, uh, trying to keep up through that period was extremely difficult. Um, and then, you know, I've always been one that if you see opportunities that are, are, connected to good work, it's hard to say no. And so, uh, doing more and more, uh, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't have the support from my wife hundred percent. Uh, but she, you know, definitely was behind me and, and understood that it was important to me and, and supported me to go through and, and complete. Well, let's make sure that we catch that then. So what happened when you got back, you're engaged to your wife, what happened there? Yeah. So we, uh, we set a date to get married. Um, we, uh, it was, it was a bit different then. I think, you know, we had a fairly large wedding, um, just different family members and, 
Um, we got married in Chiacton at the hall uh, our, with our reception there. And, and then right away we were you know, ready to start thinking about children. And, and she'd already had her uh, a daughter from a previous relationship uh, who I consider my daughter uh, because I've, I've had her since she was three. And uh, we were talking about, you know, next steps. And, and so that's... What was that like? What was developing a relationship? Because you may not know this, but that has become a theme in the podcast of the role models I've had on really taking that role seriously and recognizing that there is a woman with a child and you're entering that relationship and you have to create a relationship with both Mm -hmm. the child and the mother. And that is a lot of responsibility. And it's kind of a theme that's come out of the podcast that I didn't anticipate occurring, Mm -hmm. but it happened with Brett Contella. It happened with David Shearer and now yourself. And it's, it's so unbelievable how positive that is in comparison to what I see on social media, which is Tinder and mm. dating a bunch of different people. There's these men out there that are taking responsibility, not just for the humans in, in their own lives, but they're developing relationships and doing that. So what was that like for you? Uh, it, it's tough. I think it's different, I think, if you if you already had a child and you understand you know, having a baby, going through that, your the bond and the relationship that you have, and the responsibilities that come with having a child, and then marrying somebody that has a child. Um, so, not having any children and going into that, um, it's tough because there are just certain things about raising a child that you didn't, you don't know yet. And so, building the relationship, it was supernatural. Um, she, you know, she was obviously just adorable and, and had this this laugh that would light up a room anytime. And, and we, you, we were close right off the bat. Um, and I just, you know, part of me going in that, you know, falling in love and, and having a, a relationship with, uh, two people, it was, I, I didn't even really think about it. You know, it just, when it's happening, you're there and, um, you just take on the responsibility and I don't even know if I should, I don't think that's the right word responsibility. It's just, uh, you make decisions and, and you naturally grow with it. And, and I think that was something, uh, that her and I have always, you know, she's 17 now and, and I've had her for that long. Um, you don't even think about it. We can have very open conversations about anything. She can come and tell me anything. She trusts us as parents. We're we have a very close relationship with her. Um, I'm, you know, I wouldn't change that for the world and, and glad, you know, more than happy to be where I am with her. I really appreciate that because I don't think, as I said, we see that on in movies and TV shows. There's always this dichotomy. There's always this disagreement with those roles developing and within everything I've experienced, it's been immensely positive Mm -hmm. for both people involved. And so you can say you're a role model very safely because you took on this role in this person's life and it's, it's so natural now. And I think that that's important for people to be able to incorporate into their life and realize that there you can build relationships with people and it's not just about blood and mm-hmm. i think sometimes we get stuck in that yeah. and it can be just as positive and so from there you're at sfu you're engaged or married when you're going to sfu uh we were married married yeah and then so you finish up that program what were you thinking about once you were wrapping that up oh, i don't know i i, I was already you know, doing, uh, I'd already 
was in the role of chief and CEO for the band. So handling all the band business operations. Um, I was involved with the Chilquayak tribe already, you know, I was attending the Stala Nation Chiefs Council meetings, uh, going to provincial meetings, um, and national meetings to sort of understand what the, the landscape was out there and how the work that we were doing. Um, so I, I don't think I had a, a plan when I was done. You know, I think some people imagine that you've done and all of a sudden all these doors open up and you get to go in all these different directions. And I saw it for a lot of people in the program that I wasn't looking for that because I was already, you know, felt pretty comfortable with where I was. Um, I was just looking to really expand my skill set, really feel comfortable in the business environment and really understand that, uh, my contributions were, were as much as, you know, the, the partner across the table that's got years and years of experience. Um, that's really what I was looking for. And sometimes, you know, unfortunately people put a lot of weight behind letters, you know, the letters behind your name and, and, uh, I've met and worked with a lot of people that didn't have the degree or, or didn't go to school, but the experience was worth way more than, than the education piece was. Um, so in some tables, you know, you go and they see the letters, they go, oh, okay, we can, you know, it's a different conversation. Um, and, and it was just important to me to go and do, and, and I had a, a great opportunity uh, with SFU to go and, and uh, be a part of the program. The initial, it was the, we were the first cohort of, of that program. So uh, it was a bit, we may have been the guinea pigs a little bit, but <laughs> sounds like it all worked out though. Yeah. Yeah. It all worked out. I, you know, people that know me in the program know I was a bit skeptical at the beginning. Um, and it wasn't whenever I see Aboriginal included in the title of a program, I, I get a little apprehensive. I don't want it to be watered down. And so I was very vocal about that. Um, right from the very first sort of, uh, launch, um, reception that we had. And, and I was asked to share a few words. I, I talked about that and I wanted, you know, instructors, I wanted the director of the program. I wanted everybody to know that, um, I'm here to put the work in and I'm here to put the work into, for it to be exactly the same as everybody else in every other program. And, and so I think, uh, pushing it in that direction, uh, was, was something that was, you know, important to me. I'm really grateful to hear you say that because I feel the exact same way with some things I've interact with, interacted with in the school system have always made me skeptical, not because the quality of the information I wouldn't appreciate, but the expectations can sometimes be different and they can be lower. And mm -hmm. I've never respected that and have recently made decisions where I was like, that might interest me, but I don't think that they're taking this as seriously as I would need them to in order to believe that I'm going to get the most out of that mm -hmm. course or that topic because it can be something where, like you said, it's watered down or it's not. It's the easier route. Now, I want the respective. If I'm going to do something, I want yep. no excuses on my end. I'm going to put in the work mm -hmm. and I want that respect when I'm done. And so I do agree with that. So was, did the program live up to expectations? Yeah, I think there were certain aspects that, um, you know, I – might have done differently. And, and I think it was only in relation to some of the indigenous content because you had all of your standard MBA uh, courses that were included. And then there were a couple of, or a few um, with an indigenous twist. And in some cases, like I didn't really need to get into um, 
you know, for talking about some of the issues that are happening in the communities and the, the governance structures and those types of things. Cause I live it and breathe it every day. I, I don't need to be in a class on it. Um, and, and then interaction, I felt like we, uh, we were kind of our own, we were a very tight group and we were, we were a little bit on our own. And I felt like we could have benefited a bit more by further interaction with other cohorts from other MBAs programs. Yeah. Because a lot of those programs are the people that are going off and working for these large, whether development companies, you know, the BC hydros or government, um, they're in that different industry that we're going to eventually meet at some point. So nice to know some names and yeah, build those relationships. Yeah. And, and we did have the opportunity and I think we were a little shy in our group. We just, we kind of kept to ourselves. Um, and, but I, you know, I think, one of the most valuable aspects of the program was, was the relationship. Uh, it was the networking that took place between, you know, meeting new people, um, understanding what they were doing and how they were contributing in their respective roles, um, which I still value today. And, and I think that was one of the, the most important parts. Cause I used to, I used to hate the networking stuff, you know, like you go to, um, events and, it just felt like this schmoozing sort of, but I didn't understand it then either at the beginning. Uh, now I fully understand it. Those opportunities that you have to talk to somebody that may be in a position that you need some advice on or can build a relationship and depend on it later on down the road. Um, networking is a very critical aspect of, of, I think, growth for an individual and an organization. So I, I've changed my tune when it comes to networking opportunities. That's awesome. Yeah, I kind of take this as my networking opportunities yeah. because I'd rather not go into a big building with 30 or 40 people and try and discuss complex mm -hmm. issues where I might have more complex opinions than a quick drink. But doing this, it's awesome to be able to hear from people and get a way larger story than I would get in like a quick coffee meeting or something like mm -hmm. that. So now you wear multiple different hats, and I'm hoping we can get into that now. You are the chief of Squayala, and you work with two other organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about your different roles? Sure. Um, so chief of Squayala, you know, responsibilities around uh, with respect to governance over the community, uh, decision-making and providing strategic direction on how we operate. Uh, there's decision-making that comes um, from jurisdictional issues around lands, uh, you look at the different agreements that we have with government that are the responsibility of chief and council. Uh, you look at our, our funding agreements um, and then trying to decide in what's in the best interest of the community. You know, you have a fiduciary responsibility in order to look out for the best interest of the overall community. And that's something that I think people don't necessarily understand fully and, and they think of... Um, uh, from membership's perspective on individual gain versus collectively what that looks like. And that's a challenge at times um, because in making decisions like that, uh, they may not, they, they may take offense to it because they think it's a personal decision where it's actually, no, we, we, we're going in a direction that's going to benefit the greater community as opposed to one individual. And, and so um, there's a lot of, responsibility I think that comes uh, in the position of in leadership and chiefs and councils um, you know we have a school we operate our, our elementary school and, and the ultimate decision uh, authority is chief and council 
Um, so where you have school boards and school board trustees and local municipality and the local school district, um, we have to carry that responsibility. Uh, people often don't understand that uh, we have um, various levels. So, you know, municipal, municipalities' responsibilities with respect to roadworks and all of the different aspects that come with it. Um, and then you look at provincial uh, responsibilities around education and um, children and family services and those types of things. And then you have federal responsibilities around lands and, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, each of those governments are responsible for selectively those things. In the First Nations community, we're responsible for all of them. Um, and as we've expanded our our authority through legislation like land code and tax laws and um, the ability to create our own bylaws, you take on more responsibility and it becomes uh, can become quite challenging. So you have to uh, have a fairly good understanding of all the dynamics that come with the responsibility. And, and each community is different. Um, some are very small and don't necessarily have uh, capacity to do all of those things. Others are large and have grown, you know, uh, to have all of these different departments and, and work. So ultimately that responsibility falls on chief and council with respect to decision making. Um, the, and then I also carry the chief executive role for chief executive officers uh, for the band. So uh, a little bit different because I'm, you know, with respect to Eagle Landing, um, actively participating as one of the partners there, uh, understanding all of the leases that we have when they come up for renewals, when we look at new leases and um, we have these proposals, looking at their tenant improvement, what the offers are and um, understanding how the dynamics work with respect to restrictive covenants against other leases, those types of things for the overall uh, development uh, is a, you know, another totally different element of, of how we operate. You know, COVID was an example of, how we had to maneuver, um, knowing that some of our businesses couldn't open their doors for a no period of time. Uh, so suffering, they have no revenue. Uh, they owe lease payments to us as landlords. We have responsibilities as landlords to the lenders that we've borrowed to build the shopping center in the first place. So you have this trickle down effect that was taking place. And, and so a responsibility in that role is, um, you know, talking with the lenders, negotiating deferrals for a period of time so that we could offer those same deferrals to our tenants and who then can, you know, it's like landlord, tenants, lenders, employees, the impact was, was pretty significant. Wow. Um, and then exploring new opportunities for the community as well, overseeing the overall organization. So our lands department, finance department, um, housing department, social assistance department, um, you know, our school. So over oversight over all of that becomes a bit of a, it's, it's a heavy responsibility as well. And then expansion of development, you know, where are we going? What are we going to do? What's the strategic direction that's going to generate the most revenue and return for community uh, versus simple transactions? And that's a tough one. Um, so th that's the, the Squayala role. Um, and then president of the Chilquiac tribe. So Chilquiac tribe is made up of seven communities. We have um, essentially what we do with the tribe. Uh, I like to think of it as our rights and title body. So, you know, we respect the autonomy of each individual community. Squayala, Achlitz, Skokale, Yakwikwius, um, Chiacton, and uh, Squay. We, we, um, 
each of those within the confines of their reserve boundaries are, have those responsibilities as chiefs, chiefs and councils. So that's not the tribe's um, responsibility to, to meddle in any of that work. We look at um, how to steward our lands, our traditional territory. So if we look at the Chilliwack River Valley, we look at Chilliwack Lake, we look at Cultus Lake, parts of the municipality that are within the traditional territory of the tribe, um, that's our what we look at on how to, to steward and advocate um, on behalf of the communities. So propo large proponents come through the territory, like a trans-mountain expansion project. Um, that triggers an effect for us to do some consultation on behalf of the communities, negotiate with uh, provincial and federal governments on other uh, agreements. We have our forestry company that's operated through there. We have our for forest stewardship plan, which we've uh, developed in 2017 uh, on behalf to, you know, actively manage our forest practices, um, being mindful of our responsibility around stewardship in the territory. Um, we've looked at uh, run-of-the-river hydroelectric projects that we have essentially ready to go, but was came to a halt due to government restrictions on expanding um, the ability to negotiate those deals anymore. Um, what else do we do? We, we do some property management within the organization. Um, we look at referrals on behalf of communities as well. So if you have some work being done nearby your community and it's going to have an impact on the community, we have a system to review the referrals and how that impact is going to look and then uh, rate them on a scale and provide feedback to the community to say, yes, you need to engage in this or we can do it on your behalf. Um, so those are just a few examples of what we do with the tribe. It's a, a very well-functioning body. Um, I, I think the communities all have come together and understand uh, the differences in, in where we can provide that support on behalf of the communities, uh, which has been a great. We have, you know, we have a wonderful staff. Uh, each of the organizations that I work with have, have great staff. Um, so that's a little bit about the tribe um, at Stala Nation Chiefs Council. So as president of the Stala Nation Chiefs Council, it's primarily a, a political advocacy role. Um, there, you know, we're monitoring what the provincial government is doing, how that's going to impact uh, any of our communities with respect to um, some of the work going on, you know, children and family services, education. Um, if communities want a letter of support, we can write it on behalf of the community to the government or to whoever. Um, sometimes, you know, these consultation uh, discussions really need support from another organization, and we try to do that for them. And we've come together to share resources. So, you know, just listening sometimes in a room to understand what other communities are doing uh, is beneficial to somebody who isn't there yet. So we get to share those those stories and, and resources uh, and discuss issues that are having impacts to our communities. And then my, my other role uh, is I still have... Um, we call it DJMI construction now, but I'm uh, still a licensed residential builder and um, general contractor and partner with Van Maren again. So building a, a project here in Chilliwack uh, and another one starting next year in West Bank. Wow, that is so many different hats and all have had tremendous impact on the community. 
let's go back a little bit to Eagle Landing because I don't know if people even realize sometimes that when they're going to Walmart, they're interacting with the First Nations community and they have a huge role to play in the fact that we're able to go there and get our groceries and get our gas and see a movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's such a unique thing. Obviously, that happens with Shiacton First Nation as well yep. in a different way because they have different businesses. But that movement has been a great success in my in my view to bring two communities together and bridge those divides i know that lots of people go to the walmart and they're grateful and they recognize that that's a first nations community but what has that been like to have that as like a pillar in the community that brings people together i think i mean obviously it's a a a great success story um again i would like to pay credit to uh, our previous staff and and our previous leadership for the discussions that led to it you know with eagle landing parkway negotiations for the easement agreement um i think it can be misleading to membership though and that that was a bit of a challenge in in the communication so um on face you know in in some cases some will say we own, you know, some people thought we owned Walmart. Some people thought we owned Cineplex, that we owned these, everything that was on our land. And, and so you go through this educational process to say, um, you know, we're the majority shareholder in our partnership and <clears throat> we are landlords. So we just, we lease the space to them. So then, you know, thinking that we're generating all of this revenue, owning every store would be fantastic, but it's not the reality. And, uh, you know, as a, as a partner in the project, people, I think, have a misconception that you're making way more than you are. And then we're very open and transparent with our membership. We do our audit presentation every year. Everybody can come and ask questions. The books are available online. You can, you can see. Um, but I think the success story is just, again, uh, we've seen the growth in Chilliwack. We've seen the growth across the province and the country within sort of smaller communities uh, that expand and, and, don't necessarily have a choice at some point because all the lands have been developed or taken or private land holdings are, are there and there are no more large plots of land available to do this type of development. And then the First Nations communities, you know, suddenly are, oh, let's go talk to them and let's see if there's an opportunity. And, and so I think being able to leverage that and be an example for other communities to, to follow has been, been great. Um, you know, we're not done, clearly. We have uh, additional lands there, but it's just trying to determine what's going to be the best and highest use for us. Wow, that I'm excited to see what happens there. Because for me, just as a community member driving through, I'm so grateful. And it's so unique because as I, as I we were emailing back and forth and trying to set this up, it's so wild to drive through a community and know that somebody's put their stamp on it. And that's a lot of Chilliwack, in my view, for you, because there was Molson Coors where you were a part of that you were a part of the Vetter Bridge, you're a part of Eagle Landing. It's hard to drive down a road in Chilliwack and not have a point in time where you've interacted with it and brought some of the indigenous culture. And so that's something I just wanted to let you know about that. That's your impact in our community, and there's no getting around it. What was the the Vetter Bridge was pretty recent, as well as the Chilliwack sign. What was that? What were those two experiences like? Um, the I mean the Vetter Bridge roundabout. Um, I, I almost get a little bit, <clears throat> I'm almost at a bit of a loss with that one because, um, that one is very near and dear to me. And, and I think it's just, 
amazing that the city was willing to come forward and ask about a partnership and ask about working together and the willingness that's there. Um, you know, some people see it as an art piece. I think it's much more than that because it demonstrates a collaboration and interaction and building relationship with the municipality. Um, so, you know, that to me, uh, from the initial uh, sit down and, and drawing it out on a piece of paper, um, just has so many layers of of meaning to me. So from the paddles, you know, we have several canoe clubs within each community that have um, been training at Cultus and have had the canoe races at Cultus for so long. Um, so having paddles to represent, you know, our seven Chilquiet communities and then having the additional paddle to represent the city of Chilliwack, again, it just shows uh, collaboration. It shows, I think, a willingness to that, you know, we're happy to do what we can and put, you know, our stamp on things, but we also want to recognize that there's more than that happening. And then you, you know, you look at the top, uh, a traditional dugout canoe with the Chilquiet logo on it um, in the heart of our territory. You know, think about where our ancestors had come from in the Chilliwack River Valley and in Chilliwack Lake. And then that a pivotal point uh, of in location. So we have our traditional canoe there. We have Halcomalum lettering that's included as a welcome. Uh, you have salmon also in the design with the art, which is um, Stalo, you know, with people of the river, connection to salmon. It's always been there. It's it's part of who we are. And and so all of those different elements, the water representation, um, are, are pretty significant on so many levels. And, and I think for most that go by, yeah, it looks nice. But to me, I, I have all of this other um, interpretation of it and, and what it is. And, and so, yeah, super honored to, to have been a part of it and um, great to do the collaboration, obviously, with Bonnie Graham, having her come on and, and her artwork and um, City of Chilliwack working with their staff was, was really good. So always, always appreciate that. That is, I think, one of the main things that differentiates that between like tokenism and just taking any Indigenous artwork and putting it up mm -hmm. is that there was something behind the scenes that made that legitimate both on both sides. There was respect on both sides. And that's actually a quote from when you were dealing with Chief Wanawin mm. and that the other individual involved, he said that there was respect on both sides. And I think that that is something you deserve specifically respect for is that each time you've worked with a different organization or a different group is they seem to always leave feeling respected and that you're not running them over. And when I read that article, it was like, that's so nice to read. You didn't want to focus on Chief Wanawin. You didn't want to talk about those details. You didn't want to get into insulting the Chilliwack chiefs or anything like that. You wanted to focus on, let's just build a relationship. Let's ignore that. Let's move forward in a way that works for both of us. And that's that's what partnerships are, is figuring out a way forward. And obviously that that, that happened with the Vetter Bridge and there was a connection. You and Mayor Popo seem to work really well together and have a lot of overlap. And it's fantastic to see that. And then on top of that with the Chilliwack Chiefs. So could we talk a little bit about that as well? Uh, sure. I, I think, um, you know, I've known... Um, well aware of the organization for years growing up as a kid you watched the Chilliwack Chiefs I went to all the games um, you know back when they had different names uh, for the the team and and so in this case like you know being able to build the relationship came sort of through um, the RBC Cup and so being approached to participate and and be a um, 
you know, look at the potential of sponsoring, uh, being one of the major sponsors for the RBC Cup, um, working with Tourism Chilliwack, you know, Allison Colthorpe was, was a big driver in, uh, in that process. Um, but then being approached and in having that conversation with the Chilliwack Chiefs organization as a whole um, was very, was very open. You know, I, I think they came to the table willing and, and looking at opportunities and, um, you know, they're mindful of their organization. They're mindful of the, the relationships here. And, and um, so, you know, I, I felt it was a, a wonderful opportunity for a number of reasons. Um, one, we don't have a lot of, uh, I think, indigenous collaboration on, on major projects that come to Chilliwack. You know, usually city-led initiatives and, and that sort of thing. So here I thought, this is a great way for us. We've always talked about it as Chilquayak to, to um, promote who we are, promote the organization, promote the work that we do. And, you know, this was a, a prime example of being able to do that. And it led to other initiatives within it. So, you know, thinking about um, going to Lloydminster to pitch to Hockey Canada with our team, uh, having an element of Indigenous sort of component to the, the proposal was something I don't think it had really been done before. Um, and then, you know, sitting down and being asked to co-chair along Mayor Popov, um, we, we got to discuss some of the, you know, the work that was coming. Uh, what's included in a in in a submission and what does that look like um, coming up with the slogan every tournament has a slogan and in this case uh, I put forward a sort of an abbreviated version of of our one of our Halkamelem words so let's a let's a thala is um, of one mind one heart and so we just you know abbreviated to be let's a which and we we just used it as one mind and the meaning behind that and the discussion that I had with the, the committee was um, this demonstrates us working together. This demonstrates us coming together as one. This shows the, the collaboration and, and how important that is. And, and when I raised it at the table, uh, no hesitation, everybody was on board. So it just, it was great to get that type of reception. And then to, you know, I went to some of the, our elders, um, luncheons and, and explain some of the work that we were doing. And, and I said, uh, here's, here's an idea and a concept that we're working on. So you would see these, our Halkamalem language in Chilliwack on banners throughout the city, uh, in relation to a major, a national tournament that's coming and will be nationally televised in Chilliwack. Wonderful. You know, I, you know, the, the elders are, are very proud of our language and very proud of of keeping it alive. And, and so that was an opportunity to, to immerse a little bit of our culture just through language into uh, part of the, the, um, the tournament and the, the submission. And then uh, another opportunity working with, um, you know, a local artist because the chiefs had asked about doing a third Jersey. And so getting Jason Roberts uh, to come and develop and design uh, an indigenous, you know, by an indigenous artist um, for that third jersey, thinking about what he had done for the uh, Canada 150 design he had had um, with the uh, Canada flag and an indigenous component, you know, his his art sort of stamped onto it. 
So we took that piece, put it on the shoulder patches of the jersey, and then had his mask, which was super meaningful. Uh, he ex it explained the meaning behind importance to, of masks to us. And um, to see that third jersey out worn by the Chilliwack Chiefs at a in a national tournament and then all auctioned off for a good cause to go towards a legacy fund for, um, you know, kids in, in Chilliwack playing hockey uh, was another element of, of that relationship. And then, you know, I, I in the interview around the, the Chief Wanawin situation, I, I didn't want to dwell on it because I didn't want to take away from the work that was being done in the partnership. Um, that was something that was really important to me is if I was going to be involved, I couldn't be involved with him still there. Yeah. Um, and, and they were mindful of it. And I think they'd already had discussions about it. I think they were waiting, uh, might, it may have been waiting for an opportunity to, to look at something else. And, you know, I didn't want it to be a big deal in Chilliwack. I just wanted it to be okay. We, we worked on it and, and here we are. And, you know, in 10 years, people, just see the cow and say, oh, we have a cow mascot. Yeah. Well, and they don't remember like an indigenous community getting all up in arms and yeah. and calling people out by name. And I think that that's one of the big differences is that you just took the opportunity to say, this is my one, like this is my condition. Let's mm -hmm. just try and sort this out. And then we can focus on one mind. Yeah. And if we can just do that, then we can focus on the good parts. Yeah. And that's what I think is left in the taste in everybody's mouth is positivity mm -hmm. and bringing people together. And I think that that continues to be a theme within your work. And so the other part I want to ask you about is some of your colleagues, because we have a lot of indigenous communities here in the Fraser Valley, mm -hmm. and you work with a lot of great people. I hope to have a few of them on. Derek App is obviously at the front of my mind. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit of what it's like to work with other chiefs and what they're working on in their communities? It's a, I mean, it's a wide range. Um, you, some community communities have <clears throat> progressed really quickly others have are still growing and <clears throat> but i think we're we're seeing a common theme of of growth in communities and and we're starting to see a a generational shift start to happen i think too with <clears throat> leadership that are taking more of an interest younger younger people taking an interest in leadership so traditionally you know, I get this question a lot where people go, oh, I thought chiefs were generally older, you know, they have this picture in their mind. And, and I think I've been able to contribute to sort of what that looks like and that it doesn't have to be that way just by taking on a role and um, demonstrating progress and again, leading by example. So uh, there's a lot of, a lot of good chiefs in our territory and, and I'm, I'm proud to be, you know, a a member of the Stalo, greater Stalo community. Um, you know, I think of Joe Hall, previous chief of Chiacton, previous president of, uh, of the Stalo nation <clears throat> and previous president of the tribe. Um, one again, who led by example, instrumental in, in the <clears throat> first nations gaming commission. So we just saw, I think it was last year or the year before for years and years and years, <clears throat> every province in the country, has agreements in place with these First Nations rev gaming revenue sharing agreements, except BC. So BC was the last. Joe was an advocate. He had been out working on that for years and years and years. And suddenly we get the right government in place and we have this agreement now, finally. You know, so Joe, a persistent, uh, again, educated and, and well-spoken individual that led by example. Um, <clears throat> others, I think about 
uh, you know, Chief Maureen Chapman, she's a, a longtime chief from Scowloop and uh, was somebody who, when I first started, had had taken me, taken the time to sit with me and talk with me and and share knowledge about <clears throat> all the different organizations and what they're doing. <clears throat> um, and she, you know, she liked, she was proud of, of being able to mentor and she would like to try to look for those opportunities and, and very vocal. Uh, you can go to provincial or federal meetings and, and her name was well known because she would stand up and hold people accountable and, and was, uh, was, was good for all of us to see and also uh, a powerhouse within her own right uh, here in the territory. Uh, Derek, obviously, uh, when when Derek came on board, I was, you know, <clears throat> we have a lot of similarities. We uh, we could be easily, we hit it off right away. Um, great to be able to talk to, you know, somebody who, who was willing really, you know, really willing to learn, um, sitting down and just talking about some of my experiences and, and some of the mistakes I may have made or, or like, um, just trying to, to shape the direction that we, I was going able to share that with him because I can see the path is very similar, uh, has been great. And, and he's open-minded and willing to listen and learn, uh, has, is doing some great things, built good relationships in the community. So, um, great to see up and coming younger leaders as well. And then I think there are, <clears throat> you know, there are also, again, like I mentioned earlier, leaders that don't necessarily have a title. And so learning from them, you know, you don't have to be 50, 60 years old and, and have a title in order to be a leader. I, I think we've, we've got great examples of that in Chilliwack. Um, I can think of my younger cousin, Leandra, who coordinated the, uh, Black Lives Matter march here in Chilliwack from Chilliwack Senior. Um, she's spoken at many events. I, I bring her up sometimes to do welcomes on my behalf in our own community. Um, brought her to Stalo Business Awards to share a few words of her story. Uh, to Sandley, Van Rye, another one. <clears throat> uh, saw an opportunity within the community with respect to the naming of the school. Quickly realized we should be a part of this. Assembled a small group came up with some ideas, uh, took advantage. And, and so it's leadership by example, again, taking the initiative and understanding that uh, you can have an impact and, and do work in that way. Um, there are others, you know, I think of um, uh, Amber Price, another one in Chilliwack, you know, it looks at uh, what can we do to make Chilliwack better? And it, and it doesn't have to come from a political perspective. It doesn't have to come through you know, doing these things. It's a simple initiative of, of what's important to her and how she would like to, to help shift things. And, and so um, I think, you know, her initiatives of just cleaning up downtown, yeah. you know, those, those are, that, that's her own time. And, and that's something that she cares about and is doing. Uh, the mural festival, you know, just thinking outside of the box and, and how we, we can help. So I think, you know, I think of mentorship and leadership in so many different ways. And yes, your peers that uh, you think about, and then there's this younger generation that is just, just doing it. Right. And I, I love that. Um, you know, I think of that motto is just a little bit of the, the Nike, just do it right. Like go and, and <laughs> uh, take the initiative and get things done. And, and I think we're seeing more and more of that coming. So I'm excited to see what, 
this next generation of, uh, you know, those that don't even have titles yet are coming up and going to do even without a title. I completely agree. I think what we're seeing more and more is people who are viewing it within their realm of possibility. But on top of that, wanting to fix things from the foundation up and appreciating the value of the foundation that they're building from. Like what Amber does is she just does what needs to be done. She's not like, well, I'm above cleaning this Mm -hmm. area. And that's like, I worked hard not to have to do that anymore. So I'm not going to do that. It's like whatever it takes to build our community and just like what you did with the artwork in Vetter, it's every level has depth and has, if it, somebody asks about it, there's a story there. And there's so many levels to each paddle, to each part of it mm-hmm. that n- nobody can get underneath it and be like, well, that's just tokenism because you've put in the work and you've looked at building those relationships. So other people are proud of it. Everyone involved in the process is happy. And that makes a huge difference on how people choose to move forward. And I think that that's why it's so important to hear from local people, because there are people working so hard mm-hmm. each day and not really seeking recognition, not seeking showing that they're the best of the best. Like what Amber's doing is not saying I'm better than anyone else. It's I'm just like you and I want to make our community better and I want you to see that. And that's what you're doing. And I think that hearing from those people puts it into their mind, we need to get to work Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of people who complain about municipal, like provincial and federal politics. And it's like, who who cares? Go out and do what needs to be done in your community. If there's not something put right, find out how, talk to people and learn about it. And that's why it's so fantastic to be able to have people on is because now people, if they have an idea or if they want to get involved, they know who to reach out to and who's kind of paving the path. Mm -hmm. And I think that Derek's work has also shown that and this willingness to collaborate and stop the divisiveness. Because the other thing I wanted to ask you about, I'm sure you've interacted with it, is Indigenous politics within the Fraser Valley. Because as much work as you've done, I'm sure you've seen some of the political divisiveness. Mm -hmm. What is that like to see kind of go on not by you, but just kind of see it and go, well, like, that's not how I proceed, but like, I respect their right to choose how they want to proceed. What is that like to just kind of see? Uh, It's, you know, it's unfortunate that um, we still have a lot of the divide going on. Uh, And and I, I think in some cases there just may have been, um, you know, I look at where we are currently today and, and then I hear the stories of what had happened 20, 30 years ago amongst our first nations political leadership and, um, we're in a different place now. And, and again, I, you know, I'm not one to, I wasn't a part of that. I don't want to dwell on that. Um, I think we just take what we have right now currently and move forward in a good way. Um, there's still differences that exist. There's always going to be differences that, that exist. You know, it's the same, um, you know, criticism comes from everywhere. You know, I think of all of these initiatives, uh, roundabout, um, you know, dealing with the Chilliwack chiefs or, um, it, there's always you know, we can see the positives, but there's always criticism. Uh, and that's the one, one of the most difficult things I think in the position of leadership is how you deal with that. And do you, how much of it do you need to be alive and aware to? Um, the difference is, I think it's, again, uh, some people operate differently and, and we have to be able to respect that. You know, I look at, um, uh, we have Stalo Nation and Stalo Tribal Council. We operate differently. We're doing different things. Um, and what they're doing, I'm not going over to say you should do it in any way. This is their decision amongst their chiefs and leaders to operate in that way. Ours is a little different. And, you know, we are, are 
operating and taking direction from the chiefs on, on how they want to do things. And that's okay. Um, you know, it'd be great if we could find a way to all come back under the same umbrella. And I think it may happen one day, but it, it also complicates things. You know, if you're working, uh, I think about working with the seven tribe communities and we have very good understanding of each other and how we work and operate and it works really well. You start to get into larger and larger and larger, you're going to start to have the differences. So, you know, I, I um, it, it is out there. It's alive, I think, but, you know, you work with what you have and, and you make the best of it and move forward in that way. Wow. Yeah, that's such a tough position to be in because I remember working on the the Indigenous resource document for the Native court workers and nobody within probation or Crown had any access to what resources is available to an Indigenous person that might not be available to just a regular Chilliwack citizen. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was like, I need to get to work on this. But I definitely got to experience some of the differences amongst the First Nations communities, but they all have the same goal, which is they want better for their members. They want better for their community. And so getting the information down was so invaluable to probation and crown so they can say, this is what this community offers. So we can contact the First Nation community and get them started with counseling because counseling is part of the resources available at Suwali or wherever mm -hmm. the First Nation community is. And that's just something probation officers didn't know before. And there's like resources through FNHA yep. that are available to people that just regular people aren't aware of. And we can start to address serious issues with not serious means and start to get them connected. Somebody who'd come in and say like, well, I've been through intergenerational trauma. It's like, well, let's get you started on some counseling. And if you're up for it, you can do AA or NA if that's necessary. Here is a date in which those programs are offered. But even having that piece of paper didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. So what was an Indigenous person to do prior? I, I don't understand how that job was done without that information because they need to know where all the resources are and pick the ones you want to do. Yeah. It's not about making you do what I think you should do or the, the judge making you, what would make you happy and make you closer to your family? If that's the goal, let's just aim at that. Let's not focus on the court stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that was where I really got to hear from indigenous people and say, well, we offer this to our members, but nobody uses it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, let's, let's try and fix that. Let's see if we can catch them and say, here's some opportunities. Let's stop going in this direction and move towards this direction um, that might make you happier and your family happier and bring you all together closer. Mm -hmm. And so that was amazing to see because you responded really quickly. You were connecting me. And that was the same for almost every community is they wanted that done too, because that's something quick and easy where if I know I can start to help your members do better. Yeah. And I think that that I still get messages from probation officers saying, Hey, I still have your document. It still helps. I know who to call now. Mm -hmm. And it removes unnecessary barriers yeah. where there is no real difference between the resources. It's just about knowing where to find them. Yeah. And so I think that that's amazing. You also went to Harvard mm -hmm. and you did some work there. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was just a, it was a certificate program, um, a, a couple of years ago, uh, saw an opportunity again through, um, AFOA Canada. They offer a program. It's a, a certificate program out to Harvard and it's a, it's just a quick, I think it was a two week program. Um, it, it really just touches on the surface of, of, I, I think it gives you a little glimpse at what, um, Harvard is, you know, like going there. And this was another experience, um, sitting there and I was there with a, another 
um, counselor from Skokale, uh, Derek Hansom, and we went together and and just getting there and sitting on campus at Harvard is something you <laughs> I didn't think I would ever do or was possible. And and even though it was just a quick certificate program, it was the experience and the exposure to that level of instruction was next to you know I've, I'd never had that before. And and I think um, it it's short, kind of really broad. But it, that just getting that glimpse makes you appreciate what is what else is out there, and that again, I think the you know it's a bit cliche to always say, oh, anything is possible. You hear that growing up, but do, put your mind to it, you can do it. And here I was, uh, you know, if I think about these things of you know looking at the pyramids or um, helping in Andola, and then sitting in a classroom in Harvard, <laughs> like, well, it kind of is, uh, you know, if you you know those things are out there and and they are achievable and they are. Uh, opportunities are there for you to, to kind of grasp onto and and uh, take advantage of. You just you have to be aware and alive to it when when they come and and make sure that you do take advantage. Yeah. So what happened when you went there? What was that? What was it like? It was uh, you know as one of the oldest universities uh, in the U.S. Walk the campus is massive. Um, just being able to walk through and and go to the, all of the different stores see you know their facilities um it's a it's a bit surreal because you're looking at all these students and you think about the names that have come out of harvard and and done some exceptional things and just to be walking there in that path i think um there was a, a i don't even know how to explain it it's just that that sense of not quite accomplishment because you're not there doing the full program but you know i was i left there thinking i could do this right and then you look at tuition prices and you're like oh this is a lot of commitment again and (laughs) you know it's a long ways to go um but i think just getting that exposure to the in-class instructors their ability to pull information and extract and enter you know get um that type of of conversation going amongst the participants in the class uh, was something that I hadn't necessarily seen done that well before. And, and just this sort of high level, uh, executive type program that, um, you really appreciate, uh, the, the time and effort and the people that they seek out as, as part of their program. Yeah. Did you have to like move down there for a specific amount of time? Yeah, or? we just, we stayed on campus. We had a specific, um, we were all in our own, we had our own little rooms, storm rooms. And, uh, so it was, it was pretty exciting. And, Playoffs were happening too for hockey, so I, I we managed to go to a, a one of the Boston Bruins games uh, in the playoffs, which was amazing. Was that against the Canucks? No, it was. Uh, I, I think it was the Hurricanes. Oh, okay, yeah. that's so amazing to have that experience while yeah. you're there. What is it like to run the the school at Squiala? Because just thinking about that, that's so unique that you're able to help shape those components. Mm-hmm. What is what What are some of the things you face when you're doing that? Oh, school is a whole different uh, experience. Um, uh, the school at Squayala was a uh, part of the comprehensive community plan. When we were identifying some of the, you know, what did, was the community looking for and what was important to community, education came up, and a lot of a lot of people had mentioned school. Um, school was definitely a passion of my mom's, and and she, my mom was the band administrator for twenty years. Um, this was sort of an initiative that she felt was super important. And 
she had been there and watched a lot of our children kind of go through struggles and, and, and challenges in the public school system and felt that, you know, we had an opportunity to open our own school. So the initial concept, when we looked at it, we looked at what was taking place in the public school system. We looked at how our children were learning and their, you know, the differences that exist. And so we looked at Montessori training and looked at the differences of hands-on versus the sort of typical instructional uh, following curriculum. And, and we felt that uh, Montessori aligned much more with indigenous sort of hands-on and interaction than um, the typical school system offered. So that's what we started with. It became a bit of a challenge because you're sending all of these teachers for their Montessori training. And obviously in private schools uh, in Montessori, they are charging a lot and, and can you know easily take some of those teachers. And then uh, just maintaining that same curriculum and that same style of learning. Uh, so we've gone to a bit of a hybrid where we're using elements of it, but it's not full Montessori. Um, so challenges that you run into with, with the school, they're finding the right people. Um, <clears throat> we're in competition. If you look at uh, school teachers in the public school system that go and have a path or they, you know, stay at certain schools for so long versus a private school like ours on reserve, uh, we don't get the same applicants. We don't get the same interest. We don't have that big pool of teachers to pull from. So we often have to headhunt or we keep our ears open on people that are available. Um, finding the right principal was, was a very difficult challenge. Um, and so it took a while. This is this last year and this year have been the best years for the school, I would say. Um, and a lot of that has to do with finding the, the right team and, and having them in place. So we have um, our head teacher, you know, we call principal head teacher, uh, Steffi Munshaw, who's just done an amazing job. Um, the, the school staff have, have really embraced her in that role and, and what she's able to do. Uh, her commitment is next to none, and she really sees and, and wants to, um, you know, contribute to the success of these kids that are, um, you know, having other challenges. And, and so the other part that was difficult in the school is we have a lot of high-needs children, and um, we didn't intend to have that many in the school. But, you know, you, you've got to be mindful because <clears throat> when you have some students that have, you know, need more time and, and need more support, then you're looking at your additional staff. So, you know, are the EAs, how many do you have? How many can do the one-on-one? -on -one? How do you have the proper supports in place? Do we have all of those structures there? And, and so uh, to get to this point, we do. And, and I think they've been doing extremely well. We've had our, our bumps along the way. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I think we're in a very good place now. Wow. It's just the theme that keeps coming out is you, you put in so much work into trying to make sure that the relationships are there so that everyone can thrive. Mm -hmm. What is that like to, to bring that into every single thing that we've talked about? It's been about finding the right people and trying to build the relationship. If it's something that didn't start out as perfect, that's, that's been so consistent. And it's, it's shown through the quality of everything that you've done is that that is something you take very seriously mm -hmm. and it, it shows in the results. What is that like to know that that's kind of your secret sauce is, is putting in that type of work? I've never thought about it as being a secret sauce. And and I don't want to take too much credit uh, on the school side because I, you know, I, I 
I'd like to give credit where credit is due. And that's, uh, that's my mom <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in that case. And, and I was sort of the support for a long time. And as she's stepped into this sort of semi-retirement role, um, just being a little more connected, I don't know if I've ever, I've never really thought about it that way. I didn't think that in any of these circumstances, I was trying to align partnerships or do anything. I think it was just things naturally flow in a direction and you have to adjust and, and make those adjustments along the way. And, and that was the same with the school. You, um, If we didn't have the right fit, well, we need to make those adjustments until we can get that fit. And now we're luckily in a, in a good place with that. Yeah, but that's something that I don't think that like regular school district 33 can even compete with because they're trying to do it at scale. They have to choose mm -hmm. a bunch of teachers and they have to bring in a, a ton of people that they don't get the filtration process that you got to have with trying to find who exactly who and exactly what things do we need to put in place to make sure these students succeed. And we don't like, I don't know what the dividends are going to pay when you have all these children who've grown up with this level of support, what they will one day be capable of. What are your thoughts on that? Because we don't know how they're going to develop with this type of support. We don't know what the upper levels of a good education could be for a person. Mm -hmm. I think there we walk a really fine line, um, not only in, in education, but also in community of, of uh, support and dependency. And I'm, I'm always very mindful of that because we work together, you know, as a community, as a, as a staff, as a, as a leadership with chief and council, um, to try and advocate for providing the proper supports. And in some cases, you know, if you go too far, it becomes the dependency. So I think about, um, you know, I, I've, I would often even have discussions with my mom about the direction and, and I didn't want it to become a, a dependency for, you know, students that uh, are struggling in the public school system and then just come and have sort of sit back and this is what we're going to do. And, um, you know, I've had these conversations starting out not fully understanding. And then once I'm done the conversation, I'm like, okay, I see it. Now I get it. And, and you know, for example, uh, we have a, a new program that we're just offering um, where we have hired a, a new new teacher that's going to work individually with students in the grade um, six to 12 range. So students that aren't going to school, students are, that are doing their school from home, but don't have the parental support, uh, students that are not comfortable in the public school system. So he's not there as a teacher and we're offering grade six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. He's there to be that place that if a student wants to come and sit in an environment and have a hands-on tutor directly at any given time, they have that ability to come and, and use that. And, you know, again, I was, you know, my initial response is, okay, are we getting into another additional grades? We're going to have to build a new school, another part of the school. And, and no, that's not the intent. So once I understood, I was like, okay, that makes sense. And, and that I think helps shape, um, you, you know, when you ask about what is that next level of higher education, we just have to be accepting and understanding that not everybody is going to post-secondary. Not everybody has the same abilities and not everybody, uh, education is, comes in so many different forms. So what we might think about is this post-secondary education around degrees, diplomas, um, you know, graduate degrees. There's other aspects of education in culture. You know, we have those in the community that have been passed on teachings and teachings and teachings. 
uh, hold that cultural knowledge and spiritual knowledge that can pass that on again. So there's another form of education that isn't recognized by a, you know, three letters behind your name. Um, but we had, we have to just be understanding that it comes in different forms and, and accepting that, you know, that's totally fine too. Um, I don't know. You know I, I, I struggle sometimes with the school system because as an EA, when I was working, uh, for the school district, I saw it firsthand where, you know, students were getting pushed through. Um, and, and how do we give and provide the right environment to be able to support students? And, and I think that's the critical piece for me is the transition out that we've provided all this support and now you're going to a new system that doesn't have it. How do we monitor that? How do we offer something more? How do, what do we do there? And, and I think that's going to be the next challenge in, in how, again, not wanting just to be a crutch for the student, but ensuring that they've got everything that they need in order to succeed. Where does that come from for you? Because you obviously know what it's like to probably have not had those level of supports when you were growing up. Mm -hmm. And now it seems like you're very careful not to put a person in a position where they don't get exposed to any adversity and then end up being not able to succeed just because they weren't given the opportunity to have to step up in circumstances where you might not want to wanted to step up. What has that, does that play into your mind when you're thinking of these things, of these complexities? Mm, I don't know. I, <clears throat> I, you know, I had, I think back to growing up and, and I think back to, um, what it was like in a large family. And I kind of felt like towards the end, uh, my, my parents were just kind of like, okay, we've raised five kids already and we're getting tired. You know, not that, that that's what it sort of felt like. I'm not saying that's what it was, but, um, you know, they were also trying to live their own lives. And, and, uh, when I wasn't clear on direction of where I was going, um, you know, you don't necessarily have the support, but I didn't know what support I was looking for either. I didn't understand it. And, and I think going forward, um, that's, you know, those things that I talk about have really been instilled in me by my mom. Um, and it's her passion that, uh, you know, in seeing and helping not only our community, she's helped communities all over the Fraser Valley, um, as an advocate, as understanding and, and, you know, the dynamics and everything. Um, I think that's maybe, you know, helping shape of, you know, if I'm thinking about that thought process and where we're going, she was a big part of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I definitely understand what it's like to grow up without like support and then be bullied. And I had like wild experiences of having knives pulled on me and not knowing what to do. But like, obviously I wouldn't wish that on another person, but those experiences definitely made me who I am and made me understand that sometimes it's up to me. And if nobody else is going to do it, then I have to, I have to act. And that's where those mentalities start to develop is from those early ages. And so looking forward to raising children for myself, it's like, do I want them to have none of those experiences? Like, I don't want to go all the way where they never face an ounce of adversity because I've made it so easy because some of my best growing were done in those circumstances. But I obviously never going to hire someone to go after my kid yeah. to, to help them grow. So it's trying to find that that balance, what has that been like for you? And can we talk a little bit about your family now and what those dynamics are like? Sure. Oh, the, um, I think family for, I mean, I, I, you know, my kids are my world and, and I just think of every opportunity that I necessarily didn't necessarily have growing up and, and the difference in how I'm 
I'm raising my children. Um, I want them to be aware of, of what's around them. I want them to know that they're always supported. I want them to know that, you know, no matter what, um, uh, I'm there. I think of the experiences that I've had and in, in my, my life experience is going to be able to help them and, in just simple discussions. So, um, a lot of what I've been exposed to, I think in my career, like that I've been able to see, I had no idea existed growing up. So, you know, you grow up on a reserve and you're somewhat feel you're a little isolated. It's just the way it is. Um, so I'd never been to Ottawa. I'd never been to, you know, these large provincial meetings and large national meetings. And I'd never had, uh, thought that I would be asked to ask the prime minister a question in a, in a chief's meeting and those types of things. But through school, um, if I think about SFU, I think of individuals and the networking that I have people that I had met there. Um, someone like Pam Goldsmith Jones, who was the former mayor of West Vancouver, uh, then became the MP of, I believe it was Sunshine Coast, and and then on, on to be parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Um, <clears throat> so having that exposure to meet somebody like that that I never really thought about, uh, you see a, a you get a glimpse into a different world. Um, others, uh, Denise Williams, who is the CEO for First Nations um, Technology Council, uh, another individual that extremely driven. Uh, creating this organ, you know, helping build this organization uh, to really capitalize and, and help indigenous communities across the province and understanding, you know, what some are missing as far as connectivity goes and how do you leverage and build relationships with some of these large corporations, um, the Microsofts of the world to, you know, like, to the, again, the go-getters. Um, and then building relationships with the national chief, uh, having worked alongside him and um, and then access to his staff or support staff, um, building relationships with, you know, what I consider uh, a few of the the pioneers in, in First Nations um, governance and in progression with Manny Jules of the First Nations Tax Commission, uh, Harold Calla of the First Nations Financial Management Board, um, Ernie Daniels of the uh, First Nations Financial Finance Authority, Robert Louis of the First Nations um, uh, Land or Lands Lands Advisory Board, like all of these people that I've built relationships with over the years, and I never thought I would have access to, is something that now I have a glimpse at. You know the, these other opportunities or or work that's been done. <clears throat> so when my kids are growing up and we're trying to figure out what they're going to be doing. Um, you know, I can, I feel comfortable to be able to say, you know what, why don't you go talk, talk to so-and-so? Why don't you go talk to so-and-so? Here, I'll, let's go for lunch. Um, built a lot of relationships with lawyers, uh, you know, locally, Vancouver, uh, a lot of the work that we do, we depend on, you know, different law firms. If I look at Eagle Landing, <clears throat> what we had to do around structuring our, our deal, structuring our partnership arrangements, um, you know, so relationships with Clark Wilson. Uh, if I, I um, look at 
other negotiations uh, that we have with provincial and federal governments, um, you know, Miller Titterly, another uh, firm that has done exceptional work, uh, look at building relationships here locally, you know, um, partners at Baker Newby, you know, like Jesse Ramsey. And, and again, it's just uh, others that we work with, MMP, think of, you know, Bev Keswick, Al Andrews, Trevor uh, Pelkey, and, and all of these individuals that are professionals and doing well in their own right um, have have charted their path and, and are in these arenas. I am comfortable to be able to, you know, say to my kids, look, you want to talk to an accountant? Well, let's go. And you can ask some questions. You want to talk to a lawyer? Let's go. You want to talk to um, a, a judge? Let's go. You want to talk to a, a minister? Let's go. You want to, you know, like, Suddenly, I've got this network of of people, CEOs of companies, you know, developers like Eric Van Maren and, and Bernie Van Maren, um, that that are 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 good relationships that I can leverage and be able to share. So I, I feel like, you know, that's one element that I didn't have growing up, and that's one element that I didn't even know existed in all of those different areas. So. I think um, family dynamics and being able to do that and, and offer that along with, you know, you have your own family values and um, what's important to you in instilling it in your children growing up. I think it's stuff that I just never thought about. I think it's stuff that I think people progressively change or, or recognize and, and want to do better. And and I think that's a, I'm excited for that. You know, I think that's something um, there's a few things you can't teach. And people have to learn on their own. But if I can help guide in, in some way, I'm happy to do that with, with my kids. That's something that's so unique because most people don't know what it's like to be able to admit you don't know anything about accounting, but be able to talk to somebody who's like an expert in it. And yeah. that's something that's so important in order for you to be able to develop your community, to develop anything, is to be able to make connections. Because you may not have them day one, but eventually you're going to have to make some if you want to start to build business. You're going to have to know people and you're going to have to apply for things. And I think that that's so amazing that you're going to be able to pass that on to your children. And then with those contacts, it's hard to imagine what Squayala and what our community is going to look like the more that that continues mm -hmm. and now that they have those contacts and what are they going to do in 20 years and what do you envision kind of the long-term view of Squayala being and like just take a guess on what the future could be because you're setting everything up the best you can mm -hmm. your children are being connected and I'm sure the people that are beneath you within Squayala who like assist you in what you're doing they're learning the ropes they're probably looking at one day I want to be a part of this I want to continue this work what is that like to know that you're kind of building people up to take on the reins one day it's a tough <clears throat> it's a tough one I, I think the ultimate goal like if I were to look forward and and I think almost every leader would likely say the same thing in, in communities uh, that we're working towards self-sufficiency um, not only as a community as a whole but individuals so um, you know getting to a place of zero unemployment um, having everybody working in the community um, not worrying about uh, if you make a decision on you know there 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 are there are so many aspects of decision making that happen that you, people don't think about and if you're starting to generate more revenue or you know some communities have had large settlements and they're they're doing distributions to membership and <clears throat> it's a tough decision because again collectively that fiduciary responsibility on the collective you know benefit of the community 
but the every individual still has uh, it, it is community land. It is, you know, um, benefits that can go back to the community. So the challenges in that sense are, and I'm going a little bit off topic here, but the challenges in that sense are there are people that are well established, have you know their careers doing well. So if they get some you know additional funds through distribution, it's a benefit and it's it's a bonus. Others that you know we have people that have not worked their whole lives and, and have struggled and are on social assistance and, um, you know, have had their own challenges and, and, you know, some of them, not all, but, you know, there's going to be a few that have addiction problems. And so that decision-making becomes challenging because you put a large sum of money in the hands of somebody who has addiction problems. Um, that's a scary thought. And are you making the right decision? So, it kind of the reason why I say that I go back to this hope of self sufficiency is so that everybody is standing on their own two feet. We've provided every opportunity for members. Um, you know, I think of all of our policies where we provide support, uh, elder support. So, you know, we'll pay, we'll give them a, a certain amount a month for food. We'll, we'll pay some of their hydro bills. We'll pay, you know, we want them to be comfortable. Um, those on disability, the same thing. And we look at our children in the community and, and parents, you know, that, you know, we know sports are expensive. So we pay for registration of sports, whether it's hockey, soccer, baseball, we pay for, we give them a certain amount for equipment every year and they, they can come and access this all year. Um, education, we know that uh, post-secondary education, you're limited sometimes on the amount of students that you can send and are funded for. Well, we'll, we'll support those students that we don't have the funding. Tech and trades is not a, a um, those programs are not supported through government funding for First Nations. So we, we provide that additional support for those students that want to go into tech and trades. Employment, if somebody gets a new job and they need some boots or a hard hat or a tool belt or whatever, um, they can come to the band, we'll help them. You know, new mothers that are, um, you know, single mothers or just parents in general that are, we, we give them an additional $100 a month to, for the first two years of the baby's life so that they have some extra money for diapers and food. Um, so we provide all of these types of programs and services to the community in hopes that we're helping to lift them up and stand them up. And and instead of doing, you know, the the types of handouts or distributions, this is a form that we can feel confident in, in providing back. And we do additional, um, we do provide some distribution every year annually and, and we look at opportunities when we can, but, uh, we feel that, you know, that self-sufficiency piece and where we want to get to, I think if we get there, um, I know it's, it's a, it's a dream because there are a lot of issues that we're still dealing with in communities, but, uh, that's where I'd like to see that everything that we do and then our membership is coming back and contributing and being a part of the bigger picture, as you said, to help contribute to even expanding beyond. Um, I don't want to limit it just to being Squayala, right? Like if we have an opportunity to build what we have on reserve, take advantage and maximize uh, those types of revenue streams and then invest in other arenas or other places off reserve, that's, we need to start thinking about sort of long-term because we're going to run out of land eventually. Yeah. Well, and that's so true. And I think that that's so great because that does go straight to the heart of like what this podcast is about. I don't know if you know the artist that I kind of resemble after, which is Big Sean, mm -hmm. but what he he's from Detroit and 
they went through a terrible recession with the car industry leaving and they had to restart. And he was focused on trying to bring back the theater and trying to build himself so that people could follow after him and to kind of you're paving the way within our community, in my view, and showing people there's a way of doing this where we're just talking on the same topic and we're addressing issues. It's not about the politics of it all. Mm -hmm. Let's just focus on moving forward and building people up. I do think that you're working towards that because it is about educating young people. It is about getting the barriers out of the way because there are people, uh, I just had Kelsey John on and his experience in elementary, middle and high school was very different and very difficult because of those divides. Mm -hmm. So if we can start to address them, we don't know how strong Chilliwack can be when you talk about BC as a whole or Canada as a whole, we can really build that in. And it's so unique because as much as we have like a religious community here, we also have a strong indigenous community. And if we can bring those two together, mm -hmm. that's such a story for Canada because there were, there's obviously from Indian residential school, the 60s group, there's some bad blood in the past. And so if we as a community can start to address that, if we can look beyond just Squiala's boundaries and bring people together so it's just a community thing mm. that's such a different world to live in and to be able to leave that legacy for your children and for people to say like oh like your dad's dave jimmy like what is, what do you imagine that being like because one day your children are going to be like well my dad's david jimmy and that's going to be a big deal i think it already probably is i don't know i I not mean, not not for the accolades, but just for your the impact and how you've approached people in such a respectful way. Not just like your accolades and going to Harvard, but just your community involvement. Uh, I don't I don't know. I I think um, if I think about my kids or or somebody saying that's your dad, I I don't talk a lot about about what I do at home. Like the children, I think there's there isn't necessarily space for them unless. I'll talk about issues. So I don't share any, if there's any success, it's like, no, we don't, we don't talk about it. But if there's a goal in mind, then we'll talk about it. And I love the awareness that kids have these days, um, understanding of, or thinking about impacts or, you know, homelessness or, you know, we'll watch a, uh, I watch a lot of you know, just kind of silly videos with my kids and stuff. And, and every once in a while, there'll be a touching story about somebody helping somebody. And, and, you know, when they register it that quickly, I'm, I'm so excited to see because they're, they're getting it at a young age. I don't know if, um, I don't know. I, do, I don't really think about that type of thing of your, your, what I am or who I'm doing, what I'm doing or, or, or that somebody will recognize, you know, for my kids to, to say that's your dad. I don't, that's just something I don't isn't important. Yeah. Um and, and I think for them it's just paving their own way and, and not paying attention to what dad did, right? Yeah, yeah. That's fair. Well, the other part I wanted to ask you about because you manage like four or five different titles and that's gotta be a lot of work. And you've mentioned in previous discussions that you couldn't do it without your partner. Mm -hmm. And so I wanna hear more about where that started and how how that's impacted you and your ability to make all of these relationships and do all of these things, that's got to be a strong partnership in order for you to be able to move forward. So could you tell us about that? Sure. I think um, I always talk through the opportunity. So as something comes up and again, I look at an opportunity and I see that there's good work to be done. 
uh, and I get, you know, asked more and more to participate or to do, be a part of, you know, I get asked to be on boards or, <clears throat> excuse me, um, do different work. And, and I'll, I always talk about it with her, you know, I will sit down and, and we'll talk about why I want to do it. Is it important? Why is, why is it important to me? And, uh, how will that impact our lives and, and the time commitment and everything else? And, and we, once we talk it through and, and she realizes it's something that's important to me and I care for, then she's supportive of it. And I'm very, you know, we try to keep our, um, as much as I can, professional life, you know, a little outside of personal life. And there are times when I get home and I have to talk about issues. Uh, I, I just need to voice them out and I, or I need to have the conversation with her. And, and so we do, but I don't, do it with everything. I learned that really quickly, actually, that, uh, if you went home and talked about work all the time, then that's not healthy. <laughs> um, but every once in a while when it's something is really heavy and I have to, then, then we do, but her, you know, she, she's watched me grow, I think immensely. I feel like a completely different person than say 15 years ago and shaped by all of these experiences and, and, you know, abilities to participate in different initiatives and in this growth that's taken place. So, you know, she, she supports, she doesn't always support everything. <laughs> I should be clear there. Um, just to, uh, because she has been vocal before about, okay, well, do you actually have time to do this? And, yeah. And I start breaking it down and I say, nah, not, not fully. And, and so, okay, well then what is your answer? You know, she'll, she'll push back a bit and it's just to help me think it through. Um, if it's too much of a time commitment, I, I've had to learn to say no. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we talk everything through, I get her feedback on it. Um, if it's going to have an impact, you know, on our family time, which is, which is critical. Uh, but she's been, such a support for me. I've going, whether from going to school to taking on jobs to, uh, the travel that was included in, in some of the work, you know, doing some of the national work where it was, you know, going to Ottawa once a month. And, and I was just, I was draining, you know, at some, some point I, I have these ups and downs and every once in a while, usually every, I would say six months to a year, I have a moment where I go, okay, I gotta, that's just, you know, take a breather and, and sit back and reflect on everything that's going on and, and, uh, you know, check my energy levels and, and check in with myself to make sure I'm, I'm still okay and, and healthy and, um, in finding the balance, you know, you got to have the proper balance of, you know, professional family, um, sport, you know, fitness and health and, and spiritual, all of those different things that come um, contribute to having the right balance. And she's just been a, an unbelievable support from, from day one. And, uh, you know, I'm very lucky to, to have that as I know not everybody does. And, and she's happy to, um, she's very, I, I mean, she's extremely caring mother or, or, you know, our children are so lucky and so blessed. And, uh, she's always happy to, you know, if I can't make it to a certain point or, or, pick them up at, at a time. I always, that's my biggest key in all of this is making sure that I have time for them. And uh, when it starts to have an impact there, then I got to reevaluate what I'm doing. 
That's so awesome. And I think that that's so important because I imagine that the opportunities you're being offered, they're probably pretty hard to say no to sometimes. Like you'd love to do them if you had all the time in the world. But at that certain point where it does, you, your wife can recognize this is going to start to impact if you do accept this, yeah. that there has to be some sort of line or you're never going to be home. And sure, the community may be better off, but what are you sacrificing to give that? And I agree with her that there's probably a good line in which you're sacrificing too much of your own personal self in order to further the community goals. And I do think that there needs to be that balance. So that sounds really positive. What, how did you, you've mentioned earlier how you met. Could you just go a little bit more into that? Yeah, we, well, <clears throat> she, she's originally from Peru. Uh, so she's from Lima, Peru. And she moved, I think she was 11 years old. <clears throat> and uh, I was going to A.D. Rundle. I had met her there. She was a year younger. Um, but we didn't really talk we were different friend groups. And so all the way through high school, you know, knew each other, but never hung out or anything like that. Uh, fast forward, you know, years and years later. And, and I was uh, living in Cologne, in West Bank, in Kelowna, um, uh, building the project out there. <clears throat> we had run into each other uh, just out at a couple of events and I, asked her friend if I could get her number and, uh, <laughs> uh, that, you know, that's sort of how we re-engaged and, and sort of started talking. And it was, uh, it's, it's interesting because you, you grow up sometimes, although you're not in the same friend group and you, you know of each other, but timing isn't necessarily right. Or, or you just, you know, never had the opportunity. And then years later you, you reconnect and you realize that, you know, it would have been great if we did this earlier, but I'm very, you know, extremely thankful for, for where we are today. I'm, you know, uh, she's, she's an amazing woman. She does, uh, uh, just has so much love for, for our kids and, and family that, uh, I'm, I'm very blessed to, to have her in my life for sure. That's amazing. What has it been like for her to be able to join in with the indigenous culture and really connect with those things? Cause that must be something that like now it's probably super normal, but what was that like? That'd be a question for her. I, I, you know, I, I've been careful because I think, um, I never wanted her to feel pushed into anything and I never wanted her to feel that she has to come and attend everything. So, you know, there's a lot of events that I go to and, and because the kids have hockey or the kids are, you know, daughters at volleyball or, or other things are going on, um, that we just can't go to everything together. And, and whether it's, local events, uh, in the business community or, um, events in, in the, our own community with respect to ceremony. Uh, I, I don't push her in any way. And, and I'm more mindful of what needs to be taken care of at home with our kids than her participating in any of that. So I think she, you know, an eye opening experience for sure. Different. Um, I think her mom enjoys it. Uh, you know, having, come from that sort of, because uh, her, her mom is here as well, my, my mother-in-law and, uh, you know, bringing her to the first couple of cultural events and she's lots of questions and interest and she, she loves sort of learning new things. Right. So, um, but with my wife, I, I, obviously she, it, it was a learning experience because we'd have to explain everything and why we do things the way we do. And, um, and she was always very open-minded about it and, and, and uh, accepting, but I, 
mindful of not pushing it too far. Well, that's so positive because you could easily say like, this is my culture. Like if you're going to, like if we're going to be together, you have to be a part of all of it. And you choosing not to allows her the freedom to choose what events she wants to be involved in and, and plan out her time a little bit differently. So I'm sure that that's a good balance. Can we talk a little bit about Chilliwack and you've grown up here, you've enjoyed it. What, what are some of the experiences you've had here? And how it's developed over time. Oh, you know, again, like I said earlier, some people, um, want to move away from Chilliwack the moment they can and, and go to school somewhere else. I was never like that. I, um, there were times that I felt like, Oh, it'd be nice to get out of Chilliwack, but I, I've always loved it here. I, you know, good, good people, good friends, families here. Uh, seeing the growth of Chilliwack has been amazing. I think watching um, what's taking place, if you look at sort of the Sardis, Vetter, Promontory areas, you look at Cultus Lake, the growth that's taking place there. You look at um, Chilliwack, how um, we've seen this evolution of uh, the bustling downtown to then, you know, as other power centers or other um, locations become a little more um, prominent you know, the downtown suffers. And so then having to go through this cycle, like every, every municipality of revitalizing the downtown or trying to figure that out. I think I'm excited to see what's, what's coming next. Uh, just driving down there. I, I, it looks fantastic. Um, you know, I, I think there are some challenges that we still are faced with and, and that's the increasing number of homelessness that's, uh, that's taking place in Chilliwack, but I think that's everywhere. Um, Issues around, you know, I have a fear of, of, uh, some of the, the other challenging issues and that's around, you know, um, addiction and what's taking place with youth because it, it feels like it's a different environment than, than we saw 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Like, you know, having, um, children losing, losing youth to, um, laced drugs, stuff like that, like that you know, unregulated, um, I guess, I don't even know how to, to explain that one, but I think, you know, I went from the really highs of what Chilliwack is, but I'm being realistic as well about what are some of the challenges that we face in, in, in our town. And I think, um, we have a lot of work. There's no easy solution to it. Uh, if you look at the homeless situation, there's no easy solution. If you look at the, um, you know, the availability of, of, of drugs to youth it's always been like that but how do you tackle it and how do you make sure that I, th- I think our responsibility is just the awareness so we have a responsibility of educating and and really promoting that um, the impacts and what can happen as a result of of going down a certain path and um but overall i i think you know i love Chilliwack. i always have um you know, i've built great relationships here through sport. I've grown uh, great relationships through networking, through business, through community events, Um, growing up playing soccer and hockey, uh, skateboarding, you know, watching the evolution of skateboarding growing up as a kid, uh, not having skate parks for us. And, you know, now you can just go to a a place and we used to have to go find parking lots and and, uh, empty parking lots or freshly paved roads and and that type of thing. Um, you know, look at the outdoor, uh, the growth in the outdoor community is amazing. I think, you know, we have some of, uh, the best trail riding and in the 
in BC, I think we have some of the the nicest viewpoints. You look at Huifake uh, with uh, Mount Chiam, uh, being able to hike up there and experience that. Uh, you look at the mighty Fraser. Um, there's just so much in Chilliwack that I think, um, even from a, I think it opened a lot of eyes with COVID because people started to look at the outdoor activity here locally and and realize, wow, we've got a ton in our backyard. Chilliwack Lake, an, another um, Cultus Lake, a little little too busy, I think, in the summer these yeah. days, and challenges around the water uh, there with respect to the differences in jurisdiction on, you know, Transport Canada to uh, the Cultus Lake Parks Board to. Um, you know, BC parks, you've got all these different jurisdictions and who's having to manage what there's a, there's a challenge and going on up there. But overall, uh, the big picture of Chilliwack, I, I think is positive And I think we're going in a, a great direction. We're only going to see more growth. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting because obviously with your indigenous culture, you get to experience some of the, the fishing, the hunting. What is that look like to you? What is your perspective? Because those are things that I want to get involved in, but I don't know what the landscape looks like when somebody looks at, I want to go fishing. I don't know where people run through their mind. This is where you would start, or this is where mm. my family started. And this is what we like about that hunting. I don't know. I know a lot of people go up to like past Prince George, but I don't know what you look for in those types of things. Can you tell us anything about those things? Uh, fishing. So, <clears throat> you know, fishing spots, in Stalo territory have been passed on from generation to generation. And and then it becomes a challenge as you start to run out of spots. And so um, those that may have just always fished as a big family, suddenly, you know, be, the family becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's only one family that has that spot. Um, there are a number of locations throughout the river that are, you know, um, some of the highest yielding locations just due to the back eddies that are there and, and where they can set nets and that, that sort of thing. Um, so that's growing up fishing in Yale. Uh, you know, I've kind of over the years have not fished as much and, uh, it's, I, I'm, I'm thinking about it more and more because it's important to me to be able to pass that on to my kids. So, um, wanting to re-engage, but fishing in a different sense, I think, uh, you know, we've seen these commercial openings for fishing, and then we've seen the food ceremonial uh, openings for fish as well. And, you know, I, I, I'm i just going to get enough for the freezer. I don't want to be out there all week. I don't need to take more than I need. And and I think, unfortunately, we still have some people out there doing uh, a little bit more uh, than, than they should be. Um, part of our teachings was always you know, you only take what you need and, and don't take anything more over, over abundance. Um, so fishing, if you're trying to figure out where to start, I think, um, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to even talk to your local, you know, in, in Swali and asking about, uh, who's fishing where, or, or, you know, I've watched my brother try to find new spots along the river. Um, you may find a spot, it's great. And then somebody shows up and is like, actually, that's my spot. And you're kind of like, oh, what, where do I go? Right. So you really do have to kind of be a, understand the different locations of, of where people are, the family dynamics. Um, but there's, I'm sure there's always somebody willing to, to take you out and, and help you understand a bit more about it. Yeah. Uh, hunting, you know, when we grew up as kids, before all the development happened on the mountain, because we have land on Chilliwack Mountain. Um, my dad used to take us hunting up there when there were, when we didn't see all the houses. 
you can't do that anymore. Um, and, and then we would go to different locations. We have family in Anaheim Lake, family in Williams Lake or in, um, um, Alkali Lake. And so we would go and, and hunt with family there. We used to go to Loon Lake. We'd go up past Prince George. Um, so again, you know, different locations have different, you know, games. So are you looking for, uh, around here, you're going to find a smaller, you know, deer than you're going to find as you head in towards Princeton and that type of thing. And, and we're not going to see moose around here or elk. So, uh, you kind of got to determine what you're looking for, go get your license, your firearms license. And, um, I think hunting is pretty straightforward. If you wanted to get into that, there's lots of people willing to take you. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Um, also we have so many different first nations communities and I just wanted to get your experience with them because it's it, more about their, their land and where they're placed because there's different reserves and they're all throughout the Fraser Valley. And I'm just hoping that we can give v- listeners a better understanding of where they are because when I first started um, with my partner, I was we would drive through Squala and we would go to Walmart and then I'd be like, well, this is this reserve and this is mm-hmm. David Jimmy's in charge here and like he's helped shape this and then we go on and we go to Save On and interact there and go, this is Derek Epp and this is their building and this is... And so th- I think that that's so fantastic because it's also what we did with like city hall Mm. and it's interesting to know those things and so i'm hoping we could just go through maybe a few within the fraser valley just to give people um open their eyes to it i suppose sure i always try to so stalo territory is one of the most complicated i think in the province or maybe even across the country Uh, because if you when you go back east, there are these large communities, you know, massive amounts of land, thousands and thousands of acres, um, large populations, uh, a lot to do with treaty settlement. So um, you see it's a totally different dynamic there than here. BC being the last province to settle treaties in the country, um, we have all of these small reserves that were sort of located throughout. And, and so if you come into the Stalo territory, if you're here in, in Chilliwack, um, you have, you just have to look at the Chilquaic tribe. There's seven communities there. And then we have our neighboring tribe. So the, the Palot tribe and the Tate tribe. So I, I try to explain it, um, you know, trying to think of an easier way to explain it so that people could understand is I would almost as if a, a bit of a, a pyramid, if we start with all of our individual communities on the bottom here, um, so, you know, Squiala, Suwali, Achlitz, Skokale, Yaquiquius, Chiacton, um, Squay, these are forming our, those form, seven form the Chilquaic tribe. So here's the tribe, here's the seven communities that form it. And then you look at the Palalt tribe and you look at Quaquapult, um, Squaw, and uh, Chiam forming the Palalt tribe. And then you look at the Tate tribe. And so you've got these different communities forming. And then from there, um, so individual communities, all the reserves in the, within the confines of the reserve boundaries created through obviously the Indian Act. Um, the tribes' responsibilities are different because they're looking at traditional territory. So outside of those reserve boundaries, what does the government have to do to engage and consult with First Nations? Well, this is a body that can do that. Um, and then from there, I look at that's where we see the nation. So collectively, years and years ago before the split between Stalo Nation and Stalo Tribal Council, they were all under one umbrella. So you would have had all of your Indian Act bands forming the different tribes, 
and then all of them collectively together forming Stalo Nation. So Stalo Nation would have been uh, at that time the the sort of everybody in the same room talking about issues, going to their stories of of Stalo going to political meetings. So there's the um, political chiefs meetings that take place and uh, Stalo would take up like a whole half of the room almost. And if there was a certain decision-making taking place because they're voting on resolutions, well, there's a big sway in the vote with everybody united um, if they're on the same page. And so, but then, you know, you have the split and people are kind of scattered here and there and, and uh, not necessarily participating in the provincial politics as much and, and just focusing on, on the work that we have in our individual communities. Um, so I, I think that's a little bit of an explanation on, on the makeup of where we are currently and um, helps sometimes people to understand, okay, I, now I, I kind of get it, but um, it's complicated because you can be on Squayala, drive two minutes down the road and you're on Kwakwapult, and then you drive another five minutes down the road and you're on uh, Squaw, and then another five minutes down the road and you're on Squay, and then another 10 minutes or five, 10 minutes and you're at Hatchlet. So, you know, people passing through wouldn't even know they were on to the next reserve necessarily. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's just so much fun to be able to share that with my peers and talk about all of these different things because it really is like a goldmine of information that I can share with them that they just didn't even think of. Like, Achalitz is hidden in amongst a bunch of like industrial industrial area. Yeah. And so there's this little secret spot of community that's there that most people would never think of. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy exposing people to that because it's so it brings you back into that community of like you don't even know what's going on in your own town. Like that that depth is there. Can you tell us some of your favorite small businesses and places that you visit regularly that you really enjoy and maybe tell us a little bit of what you get there or what you enjoy mm-hmm. about it just to give people that better understanding of, of you? Sure. I'm not, um, I'm not the big shopper in the family. So, uh, I was actually discussing this with my wife last night and, and, you know, places like, um, produce gone wild or the mad butcher. Um, she likes the button box, you know, like she's got her stores that she goes to. I'm, I'm more of a, um, I might go shopping kind of, I used to shop a lot, uh, not so much anymore. And, um, but I, I, I think about, I'm more, I guess, a supporter of the local restaurants and stuff like that. Right. So I think of, obviously I want to support those that are in our shopping center. I think that's important for me. Um, I look at something like Joe's Deli, you know, uh, individual owner, Nick, that, uh, has done a great job and, you know, he's got tons of product on the shelves and, and you know, you want to go in and just grab a sandwich or some pasta. It's a, it's a great local spot. The harvest, I always enjoy going to harvest. The meatball sub from Joe's Italian Deli yeah. is fantastic yeah. and everybody keeps saying that. So I'm yeah. glad that you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, harvest, you know, I, I think again, local, uh, local business that you can go and support that, you know, are, are great meals at affordable prices again um what's your favorite thing to get there or something that you usually um it depends usually like the um if it if they're having a breakfast special i'll always look for the benedicts but they always have a kind of creative uh the kids like the homer simpson donuts too quite a yeah. bit over there yeah it's awesome yeah and they like the grilled cheese in there um browns you know again it's a it's a restaurant in our our center i know after 
uh, COVID, the impacts of, of a lot of the restaurants and a lot of the stores. So I try to support um, those. You know, I, I, a lot of uh, business lunches and meetings at Frankie's. It's just sort of the, the circle that it, that likes to go and, and support RAF over there. Um, what else? Beethoven's. There's a, there's a wonderful spot that to pick up pizza out at, at Cultus. Yes. One of some of the most delicious pizza I've ever had. Yeah. yeah. Um, what else is there out there? Oh, those are a few that I can think of. Uh, yeah. Off the top of my head, yeah. What, where are the traditional lands for Squayala? Just now that you're, you're mentioning different areas, I'm mm-hmm. just trying to think of, obviously we know of Eagle Landing. Is there any other spots? Yeah. So <clears throat> Eagle Landing. And then if you look, you know, towards Home Depot from the road and the train tracks are there. Just over the other side is our original, like our traditional village where most, that's our, our community hall is, our longhouse is, and majority of our homes are in that area. And then we have another subdivision off of Meadowbrook, kind of behind 80 Rundle and the old uh, UFE site. And then uh, we have just under 100 acres on Chilliwack Mountain as well. And then we have collectively held reserves. So um, one of the collectively held reserves by nine communities is what we call um, the grass reserve. So on located on um, oh, uh, shoot, why is it Prairie Central and uh, Bamford Road? Okay. Yeah. Um, so we have 160 acres there collectively owned by the the seven Chilquiet communities plus Quoquapult uh, and. Um, uh, squaw. And then we have another collectively held reserve on the other side of the river. So it's called Scumlass Reserve and that's owned by five communities and that's about 1,300 acres uh, just along the riverbed. Wow. Mm. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you ever get, what would you do there? I've been trying to figure that one out for a while. Yeah. Um, I've brought, I've brought farmers, developers, uh, talked about potential for Aboriginal tourism uh, being so close on the river, you know, so we're exploring opportunities currently to see if there's something that we could do over there. Yeah. That is so wild because you do get to, to kind of shape the community and try yeah. and figure out the cool things to put there that would bring in more community. Yeah. That's absolutely amazing. I think that what you've offered in this podcast has been so important on terms of relationship building, being able to look past some bad decisions or some not so great optics like, um, chief, want to win and be able to look past that and look at relationship building and not get caught up on political divisiveness is something I think we really need right now because I do see a lot of political rhetoric rather than real conversations that actually accomplishes things. I'm so grateful to have had you on. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? Uh, no, I think <clears throat> I think at the end of the day, first of all, thank you for having me on. Um I think I'm, I'm really trying to be more aware of up and coming leadership and, and it's just something to provide opportunities for. So, um, I encourage anybody in any of the communities, if, if they've identified somebody that, you know, they think has the potential or would benefit from, you know, going to a specific meeting or being able to participate in something to, to try and encourage them to go or, or find ways, you know, if there's youth events, I mean, in COVID it's a little bit different, but, I think that's something that we should be uh, aware of. Even when I met you, like I remember you coming in and I thought, oh, here's a, you know, he's going to law school, bright young, you know, bright young individual who is looking to um, learn more about community, interested in how help, how to help. 
um, in, in my mind, I was like, Oh, how do I get him to come and work for me kind of thing. Right. And, and, but I know law direction is, is a little bit different. So I'm, I'm happy to see you're, you're, you know, chasing your path and, and going down that route. But uh, I think it's just being aware and seeing, I think there's an opportunity for, for youth and, and, um, engagement and, and trying to encourage them to take on, you know, a little more responsibility when they're ready. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think just giving them the opportunity to ha- to have the chance to try it something was something that helped me develop over the years. It's when people gave me an opportunity that maybe I didn't really deserve, mm. but gave me that chance to step up and try and figure things out. I had Len from the Royal Hotel on and he was one of those people who gave me the chance when... I'm working at Quiznos, like I'm putting in like half amount of work, but he gives me this opportunity and I wanted to rise to the occasion because it was given to me. I knew in myself, I didn't feel like I deserved it. So that requires me to step up and be the person who deserves it. And I think that that's exactly what you're doing is giving people the opportunity to shine on their own Mm -hmm. and not having that focus of it's all about me and my brand and how do I want to come across? It's about building other people up. And that's exactly why I wanted to have you specifically on. So it's been such a pleasure. We've almost done three hours. <laughs> and so it's been awesome to to talk to you and really get your perspective because I do think you you better know by now you are incredibly well respected by the community and we are so grateful to have you here making such a difference and opening our eyes more and more to how we can bridge divides. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. I uh, appreciate all of your your words and the work that you're doing here. So it's uh, been an honor for me to be here today. Awesome. Well, thank you. Right.